This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So damn true. Uh, it is Thursday, but uh, I am not here tomorrow. So we are going to act like, for certain purposes, it's Friday. And that means uh, for the next hour, since this is our last first hour of the last show of the week, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you have questions about, anything you are genuinely curious about, now's the time to ask those questions. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Now, if you are a new listener to this show, whether you are in one of our many existing markets, WCBM in Baltimore, WABC in New York, the Nevada Talk Radio Network, uh, KYBR in Anchorage, Alaska, or, you know, WUHT in, in Nashville, whatever the case may be, this is your opportunity to ask a question about anything you're curious about. Now, for one of our new markets, WLVL in Lockport, New York, or uh, KWAM in AM 990, Memphis, Tennessee, this is your chance not to be bound by what I choose to talk about, but whatever you genuinely have questions about, Now's the time. And in order, to the, in order to sweeten the pot, whatever question that uh, Kenneth, Alex Barnard, and Matt Blaze determine is the best and most interesting question of the hour, we are going to give you a very special prize. 800-848-9222. We're going to do a good old-fashioned Ask Frank Anything uh, give me a call. Let me know what you have questions about. Let me begin with Jim in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Atlantic City often and craps tables. Do you have any system or strategy for playing craps? Okay. Uh, great question. Great question. So uh, I'm going to give you what I do, but I, I I will tell you that when I am teaching someone's uh, someone craps, I don't give them my system, right? 
So when I'm teaching someone craps, they always do very well. My sister-in-law, Deborah, I gave her a $10 loan. I think she walked away from the craps table with three or $400. My sister-in-law, Sharon, same situation. I gave her a $10 loan. I think she walked away with two or $300. My uh, brother's girlfriend, Marley, I gave her a $10 loan. She walked away with 100 bucks. Here's what I do, and I don't recommend this. I bet the pass line, once the point is established, I will do max odds, which I do recommend for everybody. After that, I will uh, place a combat. When, if you're not familiar with craps, the combat basically whatever the shooter rolls next becomes the point for them and for anybody else that's on the come uh, bet. So I, I will then place a come bet, and then I'll do max odds on the come bet. Then, whatever they roll, I'll then place another come bet, and I'll place max odds on that. So what I do is I will keep placing a, after I have my uh, pass bet and backed up fully on the odds, and then a come bet backed up fully on the odds, I will then keep placing a come bet until I'm covered on all of those numbers. Four, five, six, eight, nine, ten. Every single one. And then one of two things, (laughs) one of two things happens. One, I either make a ton of money because whatever that person rolls, other than the number that we're not going to mention, which is the, of course, most likely number to come out, or um, either whatever number they roll, I'm going to make money on, or I'm not going to make money on. So if they roll the number that we won't mention, the seven. If they roll a seven, obviously I lose all my money. It's a very streaky way to gamble, and it's a very tricky way to gamble. However, last couple of years, that's the way that I've gambled at the craps table, and it served me well. Uh, I've I've done well, but I, I don't recommend it. What I do is w- when I'm teaching someone craps, I suggest you bet your your bet on the pass line, max odds on the pass line. And then maybe if you want to place another bet after that, place one combat, one combat. That's not what I do. I place every combat. But you place one combat and then the max odds on the com. That's what I do. I mean, well, that's what I teach people to do. And they do, they do well. They do well. You're very rarely going to walk away a loser if you use that methodology. The max odds on the pass line, and then you bet one come. That's it. I bet every come. That's my way to do it, and it's just – it's not a smart way to bet. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be the first to admit that. But it's, it, it's a way to bet that if there's a hot streak at the table, you're going to do very well. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. So if with all this legal action against Trump, Alvin Bragg is nonsense, and the other cases that are coming Trump's way, 
do you think this will cause Trump to do better or worse in the election? And I mean, first in the primary and then in the general. In other words, could the Biden administration be uh, backfire here if, if it makes Trump more popular? Or did you think it will do that? Do you think they will eventually ensnare Trump at the end and cause him to lose? What is your what is your opinion of the legal actions being taken against Trump? Good, Trump's great, great question, war? Charlie. Great question. So the question, as I understand it, is about the political, not the legal, but the political implications of these Trump investigations and the Trump indictment. And the way that I see it is 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 this is if the, uh, clearly it helps Trump in the primaries. Clearly. And I we've already seen that borne out in the campaign fundraising numbers. We've seen that borne out in the poll numbers for the primary. Clear that it helps in the primaries. Now, what it does in the general election, I I, I think it hurts. In the general, I think if you take a lot of people that are genuinely undecided, that may like Trump's policies, but may not necessarily like him, they may say, all right, well, do I really want to vote for someone that's indicted in three different jurisdictions? And the answer may be probably not. However, I think that when it comes to these Trump investigations and indictments, I think if you're Trump, you have to win the nomination before you can worry about the general election. The general election, as I see it, and, you know, maybe people don't agree, but the general election that I see it comes down to four states, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. And if there is a recession between now and November of 2024, then honestly, I don't think it matters. I think they're going to hold accountable the incumbent. And if there's a recession and rampant inflation, which I think there's a good chance there will be, then I think Trump may peel off enough votes that they don't care about his indictments. So my answer is, as far as the political implications of the indictment, is I think they help for the primary, they hurt for the general, but I don't think they're fatal. For the general. That's my take. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Roy is in New Jersey. Hello, Roy. That's me. That's you. How are you? Not bad. Now, I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow night, you're not going to be here. Yes. Right? Yes. Who picks the fill-in for that night? Do you pick? Uh, that's the person or somebody else? No, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. <laughs> I uh, I have nothing to do with picking the fill-ins. That is done, I think, um, by our president, uh, Chad Lopez. But, no, I've made a number wow. of recommendations, uh, but uh, most of my recommendations go unfulfilled, and uh, I, I do have nothing to do with who fills Have you in. ever tried calling? WABC Radio, they don't even have a receptionist. I can't believe it. Because I want to get a hold of John T- uh, Ted Makedis there and tell him a thing or two about how you, Curtis and the other nitwit are towards you every time they talk on the last hour of the show. And it's uncalled for. It's called bullying. 
Well, look, thank you, Roy. Well, I appreciate that. Um, let me tell you this. Uh, Curtis and I, and this is not shtick, this is not something I just say for the radio, Curtis and I are very close friends. And uh, Curtis has helped me a great deal in terms of becoming a better radio talk show host. And um, as far as I'm concerned, he's also helped me a great deal behind the scenes uh, of um, managing the politics of the four different radio companies that we've worked for together. And as far as I'm concerned, Curtis can say whatever he wants about me. Uh, Curtis is a great man. He is uh, somebody that I look up to. He's somebody that I admire. Uh, He's somebody that I think does a great job. He's incredibly entertaining. And uh, he's somebody that um, you you will never hear me say a bad word about. All right. Well, maybe once in a while you'll hear me say a bad word about – but it's all done in fun. Uh, Curtis is a great guy. And as far as I'm concerned, whatever he wants to say about me, that he, he's more than welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, uh, when you interviewed John Casamitidis about his book, uh, John emphasized uh, a lot about mentoring and finding mentors and how important it was towards his career. So I wanted to ask you a sort of twofold question. One, who are your biggest mentors? And I'm guessing Curtis was probably one of them, but uh, who are your biggest mentors, the most important mentors? And then considering you have two fine young men working with you and for you on your show, Kenneth and Alex, I was wondering what you do for them to try to, uh, move them along in their career and give them assignments that will help them grow? Uh, great questions both. Thank you, Igor. So a um, couple of cu- – l- let me answer the first question first. So as far as my mentors go, uh, Curtis is absolutely one. Bob Grant was absolutely one. Jay Diamond, certainly one. Uh, Brian Whitman, and uh, he he was absolutely one. Richard Bay, absolutely one. Ron Kuby, to some extent, absolutely one. Um, Joe Franklin was huge with me. Uh, beyond that, in terms of mentorship, and, and you know, I, I hate to say it now because he's so negative towards me and would never say anything nice about me, but uh, honestly, he did help me a great deal. Mark Simone was somebody that was absolutely a great mentor. In terms of on-air personalities. So uh, those are all folks that have helped me a great deal. Mark Simone, Joe Franklin, Curtis Lewa, Ron Kuby, Brian Whitman, Richard Bay, Jay Diamond, Bob Grant. Um, so in, in terms of your second question, um, what, what I do for Alex or, uh, or uh, Kenneth or uh, I don't think you mentioned Matt, but he, I lump him in with those guys. I I honestly don't do much, honestly. They've never, um, as best I can tell, they've never sought my guidance. They've never asked for any, any of my uh, experience in terms of guiding them. So, no, I, I've never done really anything. Uh, the one thing that I've done for them that, I mean, not for them, 
But the one thing that I, I have done that could ostensibly be for them is that when people have asked me, would a podcast that they do distract them from the work they're doing? I said, no, I think they could absolutely do their job and do a podcast. But no, uh, I've never I've not done much for them, honestly. But uh, from where I'm standing, they haven't asked. 800-848-9222, One open line if you have a question. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Frank. Uh, if you were on death row and you could choose between a hanging 21-gun salute, electric chair, lethal injection, what would you choose and why? So we have hanging, 21-gun salute, and lethal injection. Mm. And an electric chair. An electric chair. Okay. Um, Well, I'll I'll be honest. If I'm dying and I know I'm dying, I I, I don't have a strong preference in terms of how I'm being executed. So it's a good question, but also a bad question in that I, I don't care how I'm going to be executed. Hanging is out, right? I mean, you, you picture how hanging goes. No, that's out. It's, it, it seems too painful. It's, I'm out. Electric chair, firing squad, and lethal injection. All right, I guess I'm going lethal injection. It strikes me as relatively painless. Um if the right drugs are involved. I'm going with that. I'm going with that. But I don't have I don't have a strong preference. If I'm dying due to the death penalty, lying. Right? What are you gonna do? 800-848-9222. All right. Uh Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh bumper music. How do I get bumper music? How far in advance do I have to request it? And can I have bumper music for one of my cats I rescued? Well, I mean, it depends, right? Honestly, uh, thank you, Robert. So if you email me or uh, or MetBlaze, I don't know, I'll, I'll say two days in advance, and it gives us a couple of days to go through the process of requesting the rights for the songs that you want to play, uh, that will probably do it. Also, if you have a very good story about why you want certain bumper music played, that'll that'll probably do it. Not 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 a guarantee, but you know, if you have a good story and if you give us enough time, that'll probably do it. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two one two three three open lines for Ask Frank Anything this hour. Doing a special Thursday edition of Ask Frank Anything. If you have a question, whatever it is, now's the time. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Journey, singing any way you want it. This is a birthday bumper music selection from none other than Lisa Esselstein. Lisa Esselstein, who I can't remember if it's her birthday today or tomorrow. But Lisa is a close friend and has been for a long time. And, um, you know, I'll leave it up to you uh, to determine whether or not there might have been something more than a friendship between the two of us over the last, I don't know, two decades. But um, this is one of her birthday bumper music selections. And I want to wish her a happy birthday, whether it's today, tomorrow, or yesterday. And uh, this was one of her selections. So happy birthday, Lisa Esselstein! All right, well, if you are just tuning in, we are giving you an opportunity this hour to ask questions about whatever you want to ask about. 800-848-9222, as we do a... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Whatever you have questions about, now is the time. Let me... Say hello to uh, Chris in Yonkers. Hello, Chris. Chris. Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you, Chris. What's your question? Okay. Um, I want to know a question about the future of the abortion issue. Okay. And whether Americans, most Americans, will ever see a need for a statue in Washington, D.C., a memorial for all the lost babies, whether there'll be a day of remembrance for them, and whether we will see them as exploited minorities like blacks and Jews have been. So what's your question exactly? Okay. Will we ever have a memorial statue, a large memorial statue in Washington, D.C., and maybe a uh, day of remembrance? Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, the answer is no, I don't think so. I, I think people view um, unborn babies as very different from babies that have been born. So, no, I don't think you're ever going to see something, uh, a, a statue or a monument, similar to what the other things that you're describing to unborn babies, because I think it, a lot of people view that as a very different thing. So, no, I don't think you're going to see a monument on that front. 800-848-9222. Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. What's your question? Okay, Frank. Uh, what what can the Republicans do to get the African-American vote in New York City? You know, that is such a good question. And, and, and thank you for that. If I had had a better answer to it, uh, Curtis would be the mayor today because especially early on in Curtis's mayoral campaign I was you know I don't think I'm going out of limb here I think I was one of his key advisors and had I had a better answer to that I would um, he'd be the mayor today um, 
two things, right, that, that immediately strike me. One has to do with education. And if you look at the polling, the overwhelming majority of black parents in this city favor being able to send their children to another school other than the failing public school that they're zoned for. So whether that's a charter school or whether that involves something like school vouchers. So I think part of it is a broader support and a broader emphasis for something like uh, charter schools or school vouchers. Uh, I think part of it involves distancing themselves from where the national Republican Party is. You know, uh, clearly, you know, black voters aren't crazy about Donald Trump. They don't like him as a personality. They don't like his policies. And I think all of the Republican candidates running for office that tie themselves to Donald Trump, it does not help them win any Republican votes. So I think if you really want to win black votes, you have to kind of distance yourself from Donald Trump. And then the the other thing, I know I said two things, but I'll mention a third. The, the other thing that I think um, makes sense is crime, right? You know, I, I think if you look at the crime issue, the neighborhoods that the crime issue is most prevalent in, they're black neighborhoods. So I think black neighborhoods are very, and the people that live there and are victims of crime, they're very, like, they don't want um, stop and frisk. They don't want police giving black people a hard time. But they also don't want shootings every other day. And I think there's room for both. So if you were to come out and say, look, we have zero tolerance for police abuse, but we also have zero tolerance for criminals. We want more cops. We want more cops in neighborhoods that are plagued by crimes. And we want more cops in neighborhoods that are seeing shootings go up. Then I I think you'd see a lot of black voters. Embrace that kind of methodology. But so those are the three things that I've mentioned. Distance yourself from Donald Trump. uh, School choice, whether that's vouchers or charters. And it's um, kind of get tough on crime. 800-848-9222. Whatever your question is about, now's the time. 1-800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Rob in Manhattan. Hello, Rob. Hey, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. Just a quick question on the Tennessee shooting that occurred several weeks ago. Um, they said that the doors were locked. They kept reiterating that the doors were locked. But those were glass doors. I mean, how safe are glass doors when half the state is running around with assault rifles? Not to say I'm not an advocate of, uh, you know, Second Amendment. I'm just saying that if we want to protect schools, I think maybe we should make at least the first floor a little bit more impenetrable. Yeah, you know, thank you, Rob. So uh, I and uh, he's talking about the Nashville stu- shooting at this school. The security video 
from inside the Covenant School in Nashville captures the suspect entering the main school building unabated by blasting through two sets of glass double doors. Now, I don't know a lot about guns. And, I, you know, honestly, I don't know a lot about anything. Honestly, that's why I'm on the radio. Because if I had expertise in any other field, I would be doing that. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a gun and you're able to blast through two glass doors, what does a locked door matter? So I, I think the question is broader. Why do so many young men want to commit these mass shootings? And it's always young men. And then beyond that, what can you do to keep the people in these targets safe? So I don't know. I don't know. Um, He blasted through two sets of glass doors and stalked the halls before killing six people, including three children. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you can do there. I think a, a big part of the problem is why do so many of these teenage young men want to kill people? Right? I, I wish I had a better better answer, but I don't, unfortunately. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Queens. Hello, Chris. Hello, Frank. Question. It's in regards to Star Trek Space Seed episode and Wrath of Khan. Yes. Out of all the uh, main characters on the bridge, which character was not in Space Seed but was in Wrath of Khan? Uh, Chekhov. Wow, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. See, the, what, what Chris just asked, and look, I, I love talking about Star Trek. I'll talk about Star Trek all day long. What Chris just asked is a textbook definition of why trivia questions are not great for Ask Frank Anything. Because let's say I didn't know the answer to that. Now, I did, but I did, and the discussion's over, right? Where, where, are, we going? where are we going from there? But um, let's say I didn't know it. Okay, let's say I guessed Sulu. All right. No, he says, no, it's not Sulu. And I said, all right, well, is it Uhura? No, it's not Uhura. Let's say I guess, oh, is it uh, Spock? No, it's not Spock. Let's say, oh, uh, okay, is it uh, Scotty? No, it's not Scotty. And then finally I get to check off. What what good does that do anybody, right? I mean, you know. If you read Chek- um, Walter Koenig, who plays Chekhov, if you read his book, he goes into why he didn't make an issue with that when it came to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And you know what? Space Seed is a great episode. It is. And it just, just to see the acting performance of Ricardo Mazurban. And then Star Trek II is, to this day, maybe the greatest Star Trek film of all time. As I've said to Shatner... And, you know, Shatner asked me when we did the screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, he said to me, because he doesn't watch it, we do the, he does these screenings all over the country, and I did two of them, and he does not watch a second of the film. And he said to me, after, you know, after the film was over, and it, it, maybe it was the only question he asked me, he said, what is it about this film? He said, what is it about this film that's so special 
Why do you care so much? Why do you still get so emotionally invested in this? And I said, I'm not sure, but, but seeing the the characters and seeing the emotional connection that the characters have with one another, Kirk and his son, Spock and Kirk, Khan and the rest of the galaxy, it, it really does strike a chord. And I say every time, and, and I told Shatner this, every time I hear um, Spock say to Kirk that it's not the needs of the many that matter, uh, the need, it's the needs of the few or the one, I still, I still get broken up. And I still, like, I know how the movie ends. And I know how the next film begins. I still cry when I see Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. So if you want to bring up with me the fact that Chekhov is an integral part of Star Trek II, but not in the episode Space Seed, that has no resonance with me. Because it has nothing to do with the emotional tenor of that film. And the thing that makes that film so great is so much better and so much larger than a dopey, what you think is a loophole in 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 Star Trek fandom. 800-848-9222. That's right. 800-848-9222. All right. Uh, let me say a little bill in Boston. Hello, Bill. Hi, Frank. Uh, Two-part question uh, on radio ratings. Uh, how do they, today, they do over-the-air ratings? And, like, I'm listening, you know, online. Could, do they have a number of the people listening online at any time? Is that easy to track? Well, yes. Uh, the, the You know, so... It's a great question. Thank you, Bill. So all of radio ratings are measured by something called a PPM device, a portable people meter. And what they do in every market in America is uh, Nielsen, the company that measures radio ratings, they pick, say, 3,800 people, and those 3,800 people measure that they represent every radio listener in a given market, New York, Boston, Baltimore, L.A., Las Vegas, whatever the case may be. And then whatever those 3,800 people are listening to, those, uh, those people have something on their, their, their uh, belt that looks like a pager that automatically picks up whatever they're listening to. So if you're listening to something that's online, yes, it does pick that up. It 100% does. Now, if you're listening in Boston, the listenership gets registered to the Boston DMA rather than, say, New York. But, yes, absolutely, it gets measured. 100% whether you're listening on a radio, whether you're listening online, whatever the case may be, it gets registered on that portable people meter. Uh, but a lot of a lot of the time, you know, they go by these uh, podcast numbers as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine 
to 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 Robert is in Maryland. Hello, Robert. Oh yes, good evening. I had a hot question. You know, remember War of the Worlds by Orson Welles? Sure, World? absolutely. AM broadcast. Well, did anyone ever think of changing the radio station in that era? It was in 1939. Uh, otherwise, they would be scared to death. So your question is, Does did anybody in 1939 ever think of changing the channel? The radio station and the AM band, instead of uh, listening all the way to the end and getting very scared. Well, it, it, thank you, Robert. So, a couple of things. The, and I hate to destroy people's myths about this thing, but the 1939 on, I believe it was Halloween. It was uh, 1938, actually. Uh, Orson Welles did this War of the War, War, uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, and the conventional narrative that has lasted for the last seventy-five years is that people were terrified. People were terrified. They went out and they thought Martians were really invading. Now, the fact of the matter is, it's not true. People did not think. And, and, and again, I, I did a bit with this on April Fool's Day with our boss, John Katz and Matidis. The, the fact of the matter is, it's not true. Right. So um, repeatedly throughout that broadcast, there was an announcer that, that interjected and said, this is just theater. This is just a show. Like, if you listened to that network, that station, they repeatedly said, this is just shtick, basically. This is not accurate. Don't flip out. And if you went to any other channel, they were not carrying the Martian invasion. And sure enough, if you look at the firsthand um, accounts that took place in 1938, people were not running out into the street and flipping out. Did not happen. Here's what, what did happen. Newspapers were terrified of a new com- uh, competitor to uh, media at that point, which was radio. And so the newspapers had a vested interest in painting radio as the big bad wolf. Newspapers wanted to portray radio as something that was going to frighten people and create this disinformation that was going to work people up into a frenzy. It really didn't happen. What did happen is that the newspapers the next day, the newspapers made it out like people were flipping out. People weren't flipping out. So it's it's actually a little bit of a myth. I'm gonna I'm gonna link to a um an article on this uh from Slate, but uh it happens to be true. If you want to read it, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Uh, Meantime, let me say hello to Alex in California. Hello, Alex. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. 
I, uh, I have a religious question, actually. Uh, I believe most uh, Christian ministers actually have received a formal education, a college education, and uh, then went on to receive a religious degree to become a minister. Yet, why do most ministers refuse to admit that the Bible is historical fiction? It's pretty obvious, based on your formal, based on a formal college education, which includes science. It's it's not possible to say that the Bible is like a an unadulterated fact of life. It's basically a fictional story that stitches together some historical events. So, uh, Alex, I, I can't answer that, right? Um, because I'm not a minister. Your your question is, why do most ministers blank? And you know, I am a reverend in the Universal Life Church, but honestly, that's that's kind of just the, anybody can be a minister in the Universal Life Church. Um, When it comes to ancient life, as if you listen to my interview with James McGrath earlier in the week, when it comes to beyond 2,000 years ago, it, it becomes very difficult to validate certain things. What's true, what's not true, what we think is true, what we think is not true, it, it, it becomes very tough. Uh so I can't speak to why ministers do certain things, why ministers don't do other things. I, I, I think a lot of ministers are well-schooled and we're doing the best, you know, they're doing the best they can with the information that they have before them. So that's that. All right. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in a moment. Let me get one more question in before we go to break. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Hey. I promised Kenneth I would give you a better Star Trek question. Okay. So um, the episode The Man Trap, which was the first broadcast episode but not the first one filmed of the original series. Now, that was the one with what I called the salt monster as a kid. Um, Now, at the end of that episode, Kirk has the salt monster, which was the last of its kind, killed. Do you think that Picard would have handled that situation differently, and how? Uh, Good question. Thank you, David. So if people are not familiar with this episode, the Enterprise arrives at a planet to provide supplies and medical exams for the only known inhabitants of the planet. And then um, one of the people on the planet, Professor Crater, is reluctant to be examined, telling Kirk that they only require salt tablets. Before McCoy can, uh, you know, he's the doctor, before McCoy can complete the examination, they hear a scream from outside. They find uh, one of the other inhabitants of the planet dead with red-like ring marks on his face, a plant root in his mouth, and another inhabitant standing over him saying she was unable to stop somebody else from tasting the plant. On board, the Enterprise, Spock, analyzes the plant. He confirms that it's poisonous, but that, you know... um, that's not necessarily what killed the other inhabitant. So would Picard have handled differently? Maybe. Maybe. I, um, I'm i not going to question Picard or Kirk because one of the things with Star Trek 
like with history, we stand on the shoulders of those that have come before us. So I think maybe part of the reason that Picard might have behaved in a more diplomatic manner is because of the, I don't want to say mistakes, but because of the decisions that Kirk had made. He saw what Kirk had done and others. And look, I I don't think, I'll answer you straight. I don't think Picard would have made the same decision. However, if Picard was a captain in the 23rd century rather than the 24th, he may have. But you stand on the shoulders of those that have come before you. And, you know, so often I'm critical of those that try to rename things that are named for Columbus or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln. And the fact of the matter is all of those people, they lived in their time. Kirk lived in his time. And just as we live in a more enlightened time than Christopher Columbus did, Picard, 100 years after Kirk, lived in a more enlightened time than than Kirk did. So it's a great episode. It's a fun episode. It's an interesting episode. I do think Picard would have come to a different decision, but that's in the 24th century. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. What is it? Onyx? I never know how to pronounce this group. What is it? In excess. In excess. I like this group, but I never know how to pronounce it. Uh, this is another Lisa Esselstein request for her birthday. All right. We're going to try and get to as many questions in the next four minutes as we can. Um, because uh, And then uh, Matt Blaves and uh, Alex Barnard and Kenneth will come up with the best question. By the way, we didn't get to you. I realize I've given long answers uh, this hour. I, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm a little bit more 
contemplative than I normally am. So if we don't get to your question today and you're already on hold, I'll try and get to you next hour. So if you want to stay on hold, we'll try and get to you. No, no prizes for you, but we'll try. Jeff is in Jersey City. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but I know you have no time. Have you sure. ever tried to convert a, uh, somebody to Star, um, Star Trek, like a Star Trek hater, perhaps, and, and you got them to sit down and watch with you, and then you said, well, what do you think? Uh, did, did, did you ever do that? And what was their response? Well, did you convert them? Uh, good question. So the closest... So I've had many romantic partners over the years, uh, namely my wife and my previous girlfriend, Mallory, that I've tried to convert into Star Trek fans who were not previously. And and look, what I do is I show them a couple of Star Trek episodes. I show them Tribbles. I show them City on the Edge of Forever. I show them Space Seed. And then I go Star Trek 2, 3, 4, 6. And um, they all liked it. Honestly, uh, Mallory liked it. Rachel liked it. Nobody, nobody pushed back. Um, part of that might have been because they thought our relationship was going well at the time. So I, I don't. Uh, they all liked it. They all like it. I have not tried to convert anyone that I didn't need to convert. Because look, if you don't want to watch Star Trek, my view is don't watch Star Trek. I don't care. Don't watch it. Um, Angela is in New Jersey. Hello, Angela. Hi, I always enjoy your show. Thank what you. I wanted, my question is, when you were in high school, what type of books did you like to read? And do you still read those type of books, or how has it changed? Uh, such a good question, Angela. Thank you. Uh, I, I read a lot more fiction in high school than I do now. Now I read almost no fiction. I read, um, I read a lot of the classics. Uh, in in high school, I used to love J.D. Salinger. My, you know, one of my favorite fictional authors was Douglas Adams. I don't read any fiction now, so that's the big difference. Is I read a lot of classical fiction when I was in high school. I read none now, honestly. Uh, so, um, so no, I don't read those those same type of books. Uh, Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank, thanks for taking the call. So sure. two short questions. Number one, how many people actually won the $1,000 minutes that you have in your program? Three. And if you can pick any co-host, or three, if you can pick any co-host to co-host with you, if you have to pick anybody, who would that be? Well, I, I really don't want a co-host. Um, but if I had to pick anybody that's on, I, I don't know, maybe I'm picking Sid. Because I, I feel like we're kind of on the same page you know, in terms of things. Best question. Brandon, New Jersey, how would you want to die? Brandon, call back about how I would want to be electrocuted. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Ask you a question. So we all know if you go by the Ten Commandments or any precepts of human morality, that it's wrong 
to be a party to adultery, whether you're the adulterer or whether you're an aider and a better to adultery. That being said, have you ever been the other woman, right? So a couple of months ago, I think months ago, I don't know, maybe it's weeks ago, I don't know, woman called in. And she described an interaction that she had with when she was the mistress for a Japanese man. And I said to her, do you have any qualms? Did you have any qualms about being the mistress for this Japanese man? And she said, no. She said, I'm paraphrasing here. But she said, that's between him and his wife and his God. That's not up to me to judge. And it struck me since then. I wonder what role the people that are the the other woman or the other man, for that matter, have, have played. What's gone on in their brains? What's gone on in their hearts? So my question for you is, have you ever been the guy or the gal or whatever gender we're up to these days that has been the person that someone has cheated on their wife or husband with? If so, how'd that work out? For the best, for the worst, what would you do differently? How'd it go? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Have you ever been the other guy? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. In my case, I'll be very honest, I have been the other person, the other man. And um, it never really works out super well. Well, almost never. Um, In one case, I was involved with a woman who had a husband, and I really liked this woman. And um, look, I went in eyes open. I I knew she was married, and I continued to pursue a relationship with her. And um, I was, I don't want to say I was brokenhearted, but I was disappointed that she chose to go on in this relationship with her husband instead of me. That's one, one instance. Another instance, uh, you know, I was seeing this woman Socially, I thought it was professionally, and she was uh, talking about uh, – I, I thought we were – she was a journalist, honestly, and I thought I was giving her information about a story that she was covering. And she drove me home, and she comes into my apartment at the time, and we're, we're talking, and she said to me, oh, well, you know, no, I knew she was married. And I said – and she said to me, I think you should kiss me. There was clearly an evident chemistry there between the two of us. And I said, no, I'm not going to kiss you. I, she's, I said, you're married. And her response was something to the effect of, that's okay. 
uh, you don't know what's going on between me and my husband. You should, uh, that's on me. You should kiss me anyway. That That's on me to deal with, and I'm working on it, but that's what you should do. So I I did kiss her, and I began a romance with this one woman. And after that, the next couple of months were a whirlwind. They were incredibly stressful. It was the only time in my life that I ever thought about getting a gun because this fella had tracked his wife's phone because he was suspicious that he was that she was cheating on him, which turned out he was absolutely right. But um, the basically the interaction that he had with his wife was not at all pleasant. But before that and after that, I'm trying to think, other than those two instances, with the, those are the two that most stand out in my brain. Have I ever been the other guy? Probably. Probably. But probably when I was very young. And look, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, you you can't think rationally. When when you're after when you're younger than 25, you're almost entirely driven by hormones. You, you can't think clearly. You know, your your hormones sort of drive every aspect of your behavior. So there were probably other instances but those are the two that I remember. So have you ever been the other woman or the other guy? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A friend of mine uh, and a relatively close friend, she, I knew her as a married woman, having multiple children, a pillar of the community, very active in politics. She's been a guest on this show. I'm not going to say who she is. She um, she was running someone's campaign politically. And they took over, the politician that she was working with, they took over someone's office. And the office had uh, happened to be adjacent to a divorce attorney, very prominent divorce attorney, I think he passed away, but this is years ago. And she said to this divorce attorney, the divorce attorney was named Bill, and the person I'm talking about said to Bill, she, you know, she said, do you remember about 20, 25 years ago, the hot young thing that was breaking up XYZ marriage and what a horrible drama that that became. And Bill said, yes, I do. That was just a nightmare for everybody involved, except for me, because I got to make a lot of money from that divorce. And this person, this woman, 20, 25 years later, she said, that was me. I was the hot young thing 20, 25 years ago. Now, she married this guy whose marriage fell apart. And she had a whole relationship with it. They're still married to this day. They had two or three children together. And they've been married for 
I don't know, 35, 40 years. So it clearly may not have worked out for this fella and his first wife, but it worked out for this woman and the fella that she was sleeping with. So I'm curious what the deal is when it comes to you. Have you ever been the person that a married woman or a married man has been sleeping with? How did it come to be and how did it work out? This is a zero judgment zone. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We have one, two, three, four open lines. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited. Uh, Ralph Blumenthal is going to be here in about 15 minutes. Ralph Blumenthal is an amazing man. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and a reporter for the New York Times. He's the guy six years ago that the New York Times, when you remember when the New York Times on its front page Broke that story about um, UFOs, essentially Navy pilots seeing UFOs. And to me, that put an end to the UFO debate. Is Here you have actual footage of naval pilots and UFOs. They put it on the front page. Uh, people always say, oh, well, if all these UFOs are real, why doesn't the New York Times, why doesn't the Washington Post put it on their front page? Well, they did. But the fact is, because it was during the Trump administration, people didn't even notice it. Ralph Blumenthal wrote that article. So he's going to join me in a few minutes with his wife. They have a new book out about UFOs for children. And um, I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. I am not normally on, um, you know, I'm normally on Fridays and I do denunciations. I'm not on tomorrow. Curtis Lee was going to be here. So we're going to do denunciations in the uh, first part of next hour. And then we're going to do the AC report. Brian Kilmeade is going to be here as well. We're going to get into that. And uh, a bunch of other fun things to get to. 800-848-9222. I am curious. Have you ever been the other woman or the other man, and how did it work out? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Good. I love, I love your show always. Uh, Thank I you. have been the other man, but could I ask you a quick question first? Because I was holding on from the other Sure, rally. yeah, I'm all yours, yeah. Thanks. It, it's about you. I've been listening to you for a long time. I've never called, but... Uh, when Welcome. you were on that other station, uh, I think it's the Apple. This is mm-hmm. quite a few years ago. Sure. Uh, and I thought that was such a like a wild show because I think you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were on from which I thought was phenomenal because I'm such an insomniac. Thanks. You were on from three in the morning to eight in the morning. Is that right? It was the weird kind of. Uh, I think you, I, I think it was only the weekend. But that's I'm not right. Sure. Yes. That's. Am the, I right? The, three, the, to, three to eight. That's right. On Sundays. Yeah. Yep. I, I thought that was so wild. 
wild. And one night you were doing it from a hotel room. It was yeah, like, no, we we had a uh, we had a, a our fair share of adventures on that station. Yeah, no doubt it was about an adventure show. But I want to ask you something. I know uh, you use certain phrases that, of people you admire, who I admire, basically like Bob Grant. A lot of times you'll say your influence counts. Uh, that puts the lid on things for today. But you used to have a. I don't know if you always ended the show with something. That I believe it was your own quote, and I thought it was so cool. In the other station, didn't you used to say "vote Leia out of office"? Yeah, you remember saying that. You know what I used to say, and uh, thanks for the call, Tom. Appreciate that, and I appreciate you listening for so many years. What I used to say was "Save America, vote a lawyer out of office." And that came, that was a, um, just like all the other phrases that I end every hour with, help control the pet population, keep asking questions, your influence counts, use it, good day. Just like all those, when I would say save America, vote a lawyer out of office, that came from Tommy Gioli. Tommy Gioli is somebody that I admire a great deal, and he's getting out of prison very soon, within the next couple of weeks. And um, I could do a whole hour just talking about Tommy Gioli. Tommy Gioli was purported to be the acting boss of the Colombo crime family. And, you know, I know and I hope management's not listening because they don't like when I talk about this stuff. That being said, Tommy Tommy Gioli is an incredible guy. Tommy Gioli was purported to be the acting boss of the Colombo crime family. And yet he, when he went on trial for six murders, he kept up a blog. The government, they went to the judge and complained bitterly about the fact that this guy had the temerity to go to the public and com- and complain about how he was being railroaded. Now, this is a guy with not a lot of money, with a um, publicly funded attorney, court-appointed attorney. And the judge, to his credit, didn't shut down his blog, and he would end all these blog entries with Savalu, Save America, Vote a Lawyer, Out of Office. And I really admired um, Gioli for the fact that he was willing to talk so openly about the facts of his case. And then you know what happened with his case? The trial, he had a trial, and I was there every day. It went on for six to eight weeks. And his trial was a total joke because they couldn't show that he was guilty of anything. And the jury, when it came time to convict him, they found him not guilty of almost everything, including all those murders. But they barely found him guilty of one RICO count, and he's been in prison for 12 years because of it. The judge in that case said, well, all right, well, the, the jury found you not guilty of all these counts, but I think you're probably guilty. So I'm sentencing you based on the fact that I think you're guilty. Now, think about that in America. Think about that. We live in a country, and the Supreme Court has upheld this. Think about that, that the judge can sentence you on conduct that the jury has acquitted you of. But back to that, save America, vote a lawyer out of office. I, um, I never went to law school. I know a lot about the law. I'm very interested in the law. 
talk a lot about, uh, about the law on this program. But I really think that, and look, if you look at the letters that I've sent to President Obama, President Trump, President Biden, they have one common theme. I've advised all of them, and this has been ignored by all of them, to appoint a non-lawyer to the Supreme Court because, in my view, we have created a culture in this country where we have um, government of, by, and for lawyers. We elect politicians who are lawyers. They pass laws that are um, that you need to be a lawyer to understand. And then if you want to challenge any of these laws, you have to be a lawyer. It, it kind of feels like if you're a non-lawyer, that you're not you're almost a non-participant in democracy. So um, that's why that phrase that Tommy Gioli would end all of his blogs with Savalu, save America, vote a lawyer out of office. It really resonated with me because I want more laymen, uh, federal judges. I want more laymen, meaning non-lawyers, laymen, uh, Supreme Court justices. I want more laymen in Congress and the Senate. And it's, uh, to be honest, one of the many things that I found attractive about President Trump is that he didn't speak like a lawyer. If you look at the presidents that have been lawyers – and about uh, of all the 45 presidents that we've had, about half of them have been attorneys. The ones that have been attorneys, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, the, the, not all of them, but they tend to be more slippery. They tend to kind of go right up until that edge of what's legal and illegal. They tend to hover right over that line of what's legal and illegal. The non-lawyers, they know what's right. They know what's wrong. They know what's ethical. They know what's unethical. And that is what brings us to our discussion today. Have you ever been the other man or the other woman? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello, sir. It's happened to me twice over the years, and I got a little advice for your audience too in a technological world, because everybody these days, when they when you try to meet or coordinate with with people, they plug it into their GPS and they kind of use. Especially, I don't want to defame women, but you know, a lot of, they're not really maps. Uh, you know, they're not really good with that. Everybody just gets lazy in GPS or things. Well, guess what? You create a forever tracking device that can be accessed by your spouse who thinks that you're cheating now in this one situation both situations that kind of blew up like that um one of them they eventually dissolved both times i had to deal with the husbands one time the the, the relationship had just dissolved and it went away but i still had to deal with an angry man the second time the woman was getting even with her husband because he had been cheating on her multiple times Ah. and she wanted to create a trail so he would discover her abilities and guess who had to deal with the repercussions of that i'm guessing you did absolutely and it wasn't nice and there was some confrontations in the street Ah. and so keep in mind for your audience 
When that, even for you, even for you, anytime you give somebody, you know, uh, directions to your home, it becomes a permanent record that can be sought and, and tracked. So I have from now at that point on, I give people locations that are not mine, including my Uber drivers. Right? I give them the address across the street. I give them something down the block. This way, if somebody wants to come there, let them go ring on my neighbor's bell, and I'll come down and deal with him later. But I'm not giving anybody access to exactly where I live. Uh, thank you for that, Gino. Hey, Gino, I'm in Atlantic City, uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend. Let me know if you're around. I'd love to meet up with you if you're out there. Uh, you got it. All right. Thank you, Gino. 800-848-92. 22. Um, what about you, Matt Blaze? Ever been the other guy? Uh, or, I mean, I know you were in a long-term relationship for many years, but have you ever been the, the, the fella that... Uh... I, I've dabbled. Well, so you, <laughs> well, so you've been it, with a married woman? Yeah, and it, it, you're, it doesn't work out. Never works out. It never works out. Uh, the, the person was married in a horrible relationship. The husband had cheated on her. She didn't care anymore. She had three. They had, she had three kids, and I was young and single. And because she had a life and family that she had to take care of, we couldn't see each other that often. And eventually, I was just like, you know, I'm young. I want to. And she was like, Oh, you can't be with other people or anything How like that. How old are you? I was like thirty. Oh, thirty. Thirty's not that young, right? Uh, but I mean, I was on the younger side. Young. Yeah. And I was just like, after a while, it was kind of like, this isn't working. Like, I don't like this. And the whole thing of being married, it's there's still something that I'm like, I just don't like that. So it's how not did starting you get involved in this one with with this woman who was married? It was someone that I met, um, someone through work because I was DJing, you know, when I was oh, when I was DJing. Yes, so yes, yes. yeah, it was one of those things. And then it just it didn't last very long. Maybe um, maybe a month. If if that yeah probably about a month and it, it was just I just it was like this isn't for me I'm, I I don't I feel like unhappy you know what I mean like I you know you want to see somebody and then you well I can't see them because they're they had a shared schedule yeah uh, now so I, I, was I like, hear that I hear that I now like that's uh, that's all that very that. that's uh, that's all uh, understandable all right eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 have you ever been the other guy or the other woman. All of your anonymity will absolutely be protected. 800-848-9222. David is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, David. Hey, how are you, uh, Frank? Uh, I've been listening to you for a while. Uh, you knew uh, Bob Grant? Very well, yes. We're very, very close friends and uh, very much a mentor to me, absolutely. Oh, my God, this is like a brush with fame. Uh, you know, do you ever remember hearing him say, somebody would say to him, uh, hey, how you doing? And he would say, is, is there anything else on your mind yes. besides the state I, of my I, health? I do, I do, yeah. He would say a, a lot of stuff like that, and I, I remember it vividly, yes. Yeah, now, I'm a, I'm a leftover from last hour. I've been hanging on for a sure. while. And you said anything, so yep. I, I wanted to challenge you. I wanted to get you to... Uh, Put your tinfoil hat on and uh, consult Rabbi Google. Now I'm not going to go into your wheelhouse with Star Trek questions. Sure. So I got I got something a little different. Um, I kind of got the impression that you uh, that you favor the uh, evolutionary paradigm. So um, now we know that the the, um, uh, the DNA is a four chemical 
digital biological code with a tremendous amount of information. Now, there are many examples of uh, information, for instance, uh, the the software in a uh, computer, the, the hieroglyphics on a rock, the text on a page, and every one of those incidences of information resorts back to intelligence. So here's the question. Can you think of one example of information that does not resort back to intelligence? You know, so, David, I, I'm not sure I completely understand the the question, right? So I, I understand the context that you offered about DNA and what DNA leads to. I'm I I I'm I'm a little lost. I have to be honest. I I don't necessarily know that I follow what you're what you're saying or what you're asking. Well, I'm I'm saying that uh, my contention is that uh, there is no uh, instance in the world that we know of where information does not re- resort back to a mind to intelligence. Right. Well, I, I would agree with that. Right. I mean, thank you, David. So whether we're we're talking about God or whether we're talking about extraterrestrials or whether God is some some form of extraterrestrial intelligence, everything comes from somewhere, right? I I mean, I I agree with that. Um, What the somewhere is, I guess that's one of the great mysteries. So I I hope I'm answering your question in the spirit in which it was asked, uh, but... um, I'm not I'm not sure that I am. But but yeah, I mean, look, everything comes from somewhere, right? I I mean, uh, to advert I know it's a silly comparison, but to advert back to David's question about the man trap and Kirk and Picard, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Whether it's um an alien, whether it's a deity, right? So, I don't know. 800-848-9222. E. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes. Uh, hello, Frank. Nice to hear you and uh, nice to hear what you're saying this evening. Thank you. Um, you know, I um, just wanted to ask you a question from the last segment in the previous hour. I would just like to ask you in question form. Um you know, I came from a stringent um, immigration status, okay? I was born in the United States and so on. Uh, and I was just wondering, do you think that President uh, Joe Biden will have uh, a better understanding of immigration reform and have a, an immigration platform where he uh, offers solutions for the border crisis in a, in a, if he decides to run for president? Well, better than what or better than whom? Well, if you phrase it that way, Frank, I would believe better than uh, George Bush Sr. and better than President Donald Trump. Uh, Thank you, uh, E. Frank. No, I don't, right? So um, I think, you know, I I fault President Trump for many things. And uh, I think he was wrong on a lot of substantive policy issues. I think he was wrong in a lot of the people that he appointed things. But I think President Trump had it absolutely right on border security and on the border in general and on immigration. You know, 
there comes a, a situation, and this is why I may vote for Donald Trump again, it, it, assuming he he's the nominee in 2024. What we've done over the course of the and pre 2016, over the course of the last 25 years, what we've done is we have outsourced the government of this country to multinational corporations. And these multinational corporations have decided the most important thing to them is cheap labor and cheap prices for consumers. And folks love it. Folks love it. They love going to be able to go to Walmart, go to Costco, and be able to pay the lowest price possible for something that was produced in China. And the corporations that provide those products also love it because with the cheap labor that they get from one of two places, either China, Mexico, wherever, or in the United States because People in this country are working for slave wages because they aren't even in this country and they're not being uh, paid as workers in this country should. They love it. And Trump, and and, and again, this is one of the things that really attracted me to him and and to Bernie Sanders and to Pat Buchanan and to uh, Ralph Nader and to all sorts of other folks is they recognized that government of buy and for corporations doesn't work for the American people. And whether we're talking about cheap labor abroad through free trade or whether we're talking about cheap labor in this country because of illegal immigration, it doesn't work. doesn't work if you're interested in uh, better wages and a better life for Americans. So, no, the answer to your question is no, 100% emphatically, enthusiastically, no, Joe Biden would not have a better immigration policy than Joe Biden. All right, coming up in a moment, Deborah Blumenthal and Ralph Blumenthal. Ralph Blumenthal is an incredible journalist, very reputable, New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner, best-selling author, and now the two of them have written a book called UFO. U-F-O-H-S, exclamation point. Mysteries in the Sky. It's a children's book about UFOs. Can you believe that? We'll get into it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing searching for the truth will we make it till tomorrow will the sun shine on you 
the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it's no secret that over the course of the last six years, the issue of UFOs and UAPs and ETs and everything that that encompasses has gone from something that was relegated only to late night radio shows and uh, cheap pulp novels to being taken very seriously, not only in the world of journalism, uh, with feature articles by CBS News, Fox News, CNN, and of course, the New York Times, but it's being taken so seriously by mainstream America that there's actually now been a series of congressional hearings on this. There's been new legislation on this. And the issue is now taken very seriously by public policymakers, not just in this country, but all over the world. I'm very pleased uh, to be joined by a gentleman who's one of the key people responsible for the mainstreaming of the UFO issue. He is a veteran reporter for the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner, author of The Believer, and uh, he's embarking on a pretty serious new uh, new project now, which we're going to tell you about with his co-author author in a moment. Let me first begin by welcoming the one and only Pulitzer Prize winning author, Ralph Blumenthal. Ralph, it's hey. great to talk to you again. Frank, likewise. Great to hear you. Thank you. Yeah, You have a, a co-author that uh, we're going to talk about your new project in a moment, but she has uh, a very similar last name, Deborah Blumenthal. I'm wondering if it's any relation. Hello, Deborah. Uh, yes, uh, a steady relationship for many years. We have been married. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And uh, as long as, uh, long as you still are married, then uh, I yeah. imagine that produces a very good writing collaboration as well. <laughs> Um, now, uh, Ralph, let me begin. If people haven't heard our previous discussion about your book, The Believer, it's one of the most uh, fascinating discussions ever, and it has to do with a very serious academic, Harvard psychiatrist, John Mack. And it's funny, I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with William Shatner a few months ago, and mm. he and I ended up talking about how remarkable the story of John Mack was, and I recommended your book to him. I don't know if he ended up reading it, but he was fascinated by the story of John Mack, and he knew all about it. For any of our listeners that aren't familiar with John Mack and are not familiar with your previous book, The Believer, tell us about it. Give us the sort of the Reader's Digest version of who John Mack was and why his work was so significant. Great. It's, it's uh, very happy to do that. Uh, John Mack was an esteemed uh, Harvard psychiatrist uh, at Harvard Medical School, uh, he'd grown up in a very conventional uh, household, wealthy household, but uh, um, nothing about, you know, aliens and UFOs or so. But um, he um, had the experience of meeting a, a pioneer of, of UFO research, Bud Hopkins. And little by little, he got interested himself, and he, he wondered why so many of his psychiatric uh, patients were telling him stories about encounters with alien beings. And um, he, quit, he he looked into it, 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 he got very interested in it, and he quickly realized that these people were not mentally ill. They came from all walks of life, uh, all ages, including little children, and they all 
talked about this uh, unexplained and unexplainable um, event, uh, this encounter with uh, uh, other intelligence. And uh, he spent his uh, later years trying to figure it out. Um, He didn't solve the mystery, as as we don't solve the mystery today. Um, But he at least, uh, you know, showed what it wasn't. It was not fabrication. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't, uh, you know, to make money. Uh, on the contrary, these people were, you know, frightened of, of what happened to them, and they they ran away from the experience. So anyway, that was his contribution. He was an eminent uh, ac- academician, and he took it seriously and shed light on a very, very strange uh, area of the paranormal. And, and Shatner told me, and you get into this a little bit in your book, that a lot of his reputation was damaged, both within academia and maybe even financially, because he took these folks so seriously, right? Well, he did. And he, uh, you know, he was not one to walk away from controversy. He he saw a mystery here, which was compelling, certainly one of the greatest mysteries uh, ever in, in the cosmos. Um, and he just, he determined to pursue it even when Harvard thought he was going too far, and they secretly investigated him. In the end, they cleared him. He did nothing wrong, but it did damage him. Wow. It's a wild, wild uh, story, and people should check out the book, The Believer, and uh, especially all the cynical uh, listeners in our audience that uh, every time the subject of abduction comes up, you have people rushing to claim that they're either grifters or delusional. Well, clearly, John Mack did a lot of research into it, and that was not his conclusion. Uh, Ralph, before we discuss what you and Deborah are working on now, because I know this is a big week for you guys— you totally turned the world of UFO journalism on its head six years ago with that front page story in the New York Times. Now, there were two huge revelations in this story each of which could have been its own front-page story. One was uh, the incredible images uh, uh, captured by naval pilots showing these naval pilots actually uh, chasing uh, UFOs that they couldn't explain. You hear the disbelief of the pilots. The other thing that was interesting is that the uh, government, through mostly Harry Reid, had been funding this secret UFO exploration program, ATIP, for several years. I'm wondering, uh, Ralph, how did that article come to be? How did you uh, come to uh, work on that story? And how did you get the New York Times to put it on its front page? And how did it come to come off the way it did? Well, I'd been working on my book, The Believer, all along, but quite independently of that, I had met Leslie Kane, uh, who's you know the, the foremost UFO writer in the country, probably the most knowledgeable investigator of UFO phenomena. And she had gone down to Washington and met um, some intelligence people who told her um, you know, secretly of this uh, Pentagon unit that had been investigating UFOs all along. They got $22 million from Harry Reid. It was never announced. The government was supposedly out of the UFO business for 50 years. They said there was nothing to it. You know, it was all, uh, you know, either a hoax or fabrications. Um, of course, they were. the government was always interested in UFOs and um, in 2007 had funded this secret unit to investigate UFOs. And they actually had pictures, as you said, of encounters between Navy pilots and these objects, which were very real indeed. They weren't, you know, hallucinations of any kind. 
So um, Leslie came back from that meeting in Washington. We took it to the New York Times. I'd been a New York Times writer for a long time, but um, I, I'd you know recently retired, but I still contributed to the paper. Uh, the Times got it right away. They saw that we had all the information on the record, named sources, you know everything documented. Um, and as you said, they ran the story on the front page on a Sunday, and it, it produced a, t- a tremendous reaction. Now, uh, let me ask both of you about this uh, great book that has just come out just a few days ago. It's called UFOs, Mystery in the Sky. And it's the it's one of it's the first UFO book that I've ever seen that's nonfiction, but geared towards young people. Deborah, tell me about the idea for this book. How did that come about? Well, actually, during the pandemic, We were both home together, and Ralph was doing numerous interviews and podcasts about The Believer, and it struck me one day as a a children's book author perpetually in search of new ideas for projects that there wasn't anything out there on UFOs for children. Um, You know, there have been books for middle-aged kids and young adults, but really nothing with interesting pictures for the kindergarten set, um, and in fact, this book is for children six to nine. So we discussed it, and you know, together we, you know, we put together a manuscript, and it was illustrated by a terrific children's book illustrator named Adam Gustafson, who did an earlier book of mine called The Blue House Dog. And so the project really just came together, and the University of New Mexico Press, we thought, was the perfect home for it since they had published Ralph's book. And and that was really, you know, how it all started. Why did you guys think it was important to have a book focused on UFOs for for children? Uh, there's a lot of folks, a lot of parents of uh, six-year-olds that might say, well, it might be a little spooky for, uh, for uh, my child. Why do you think it's important for children to learn about this stuff, not in a science fiction type of way, but in a factual type of way? Right. That's a great question. Um, the fact is people have been reported, have reported sightings all over the world for years. And they're talking about the subject. They're talking about it at home. They're talking, you know, with the family. They're talking with friends. And so you can't exclude children from the conversation. So it seemed obvious to me that the best way to introduce the subject to kids is to talk about what we don't know and what we hope to find out. The, you know, it's a huge mystery, and kids love mysteries. So bring them into the conversation, and everything is less threatening when you sit mm. down with your kids and talk about it. I think the most dangerous thing is, is to exclude them from conversations in the hope that you'll, you know, somehow safeguard them or prevent them from being afraid. You know, that that's not how it works. And, and you know, uh, Frank, I mean, kids are very sophisticated today. They see a lot of stuff on TV and on social media. Um, and uh, so this stuff is, is, you know, in the air, literally. Mm. Um, so they're picking up, you know, bits and pieces of this. So uh, it's not like, you know, we're introducing this to, to them mm. completely cold. They've uh, heard stories. They've seen a lot of fictional, you know, representations of this on TV and cartoons. So we wanted to give them a sound basis for sort of understanding this, because the worst thing you can do to a kid, as Deborah said, is 
is is hide something and, and give them the feeling that there's something wrong about this, there's something dangerous, you know. So we wanted to confront it. Absolutely. And, and the fact is the whole children's book field has gotten much more sophisticated. And, it you know, books are dealing with all types of topics that you wouldn't have imagined years ago. So obviously kids are ready for it. If the material is presented in a simple and non-threatening way, um, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And even though my son's uh, a couple of years pri- uh, too young, probably, for the target audience of this book, I'm going to be ordering a copy, and I'll look forward to when he's old enough to understand it. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Deborah Blumenthal and Ralph Blumenthal. They are the co-authors of UFOs, Mysteries in the Sky, the first book to explore the strange, exciting, and unknown world of unidentified aerial phenomena for kids. Ralph, I have found that a lot of times it's the adults rather than the children that tend to have a closed mind about this stuff. I'm wondering, even though the intended audience for this book is children, is this a book that adults could benefit from in terms of uh, learning a little bit about the facts in an easy-to-understand way and maybe looking at this issue from a more open perspective than they heretofore have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we presented this in a very sober way. We acknowledge that it's a mystery. We don't have answers. But we also say that these things have been seen in the sky now, photographed by, you know, Navy pilots. Um, And now the government, for the first time in recent years, partly as a result of of our reporting in The New York Times, has said that these things are uh, actual, you know, physically real. They're objects that we don't know anything else about, where they come from, who might be behind the wheel, if any, anybody or anything. Uh, Why are they here? We don't know any of that, but at least we know that these things... Uh, f- physically are real, and they're not hallucinations, and you know they're not uh, fly specks on the windshield and all the other explanations. So, um, uh, and I think parents, uh, you know, are coming to grips with that too. There's there's still a feeling in many parts of the country that this is demonic, and you know we don't want to deal with this. But uh, you know, facts are stubborn things, and uh, the country's coming around to it. Uh, the, the, the government is now saying these things are real. So it is a way of bringing parents and children together to look at the phenomenon, as I said, in a very factual, straightforward way. We don't talk about aliens. You know, we don't talk about the supernatural. We just talk about things that are now acknowledged as as real and that remain mysterious but uh, have a physicality uh, that cannot be denied. Deborah, I know you've written books for children before, you've written books for young adults before, and you've written books for plain old regular adults before. I'm wondering how different the process is to do each of the three of those, a a book for children versus young adults versus adults. Do you have to sort of get yourself in a different headspace to work on each of those? Um, I wouldn't say a different headspace. For me, what's key is just falling in love with the subject. And once I fall in love with the subject, that's, you know, I fixate on it and, and do the research and have fun with the words and uh, you know, just take the time I need to write the story. Uh, so it, it really doesn't matter to me whether I'm writing for children or um, young adults. It, it, it's a matter of falling in love with the subject and 
finding something that I want to spend time with. That's great. Well, the book, again, is called UFOs, Mysteries in the Sky, and it's available on uh, Amazon and most other places that uh, that books are available. Uh, Ralph, while I have you here, I, I alluded to the congressional hearings that we've already seen on this, the legislation that has come out to protect UFO whistleblowers, the provisions regarding UFOs or UAPs that are in the National Defense Authorization Act. I'm curious, as somebody that follows this stuff pretty closely, what do you think the next step is in terms of congressional action on this, if any? And do you think we're any closer to really a watershed moment in terms of disclosure about what the government does know fully about these things and having them level with the public about what they might know? Yeah, well, we still have a long way to go. I mean, uh, you could look at how far we've come, which is considerable, because, as I said, the government is now acknowledging that these things are real um, and that they're concerned about it from a national security standpoint, from a you know a mystery that they don't know, you know where these objects are coming from or why they're here. Um, but there's still a lot that's being withheld from the American people. The last hearings were, I think, kind of disappointing in many ways because um, a lot of the material is still classified. It's not being discussed in public. Um, uh, you know, a lot of information is still being withheld from the American people deserve to know that this is, you know, and not only the American people, the people of the world. I mean, this is all our communal future. Uh, is going to be based on understanding, you know, what this phenomenon is. So um, it's a kind of a mixed bag. I think the last few hearings have been kind of disappointing for people who are looking for, you know, big revelations. Uh, But the fact that they're occurring at all, you know, Congress uh, has been very uh, afraid to step into this field because they don't want to be accused of, you know, of, um, you know, being gullible or mentally ill, you know, all those things that can hurt a, a politician. Uh, so they've been kind of courageous in, in stepping up and, and looking at this issue. So we still have a long way to go. But if you look at how far we've come, uh, that's encouraging. Well, I think it's terrific. Want to wish both of you the best of luck with this uh, with this new book. I'll look forward to getting a copy for my son, and uh, I hope a lot of the parents in our audience do the same thing. Uh, Ralph and Deborah Blumenthal, thanks very much. I'll look forward to talking with you both again soon. Thanks so much, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. All right, we're going to do uh, denunciations in a moment. Now, uh, for people listening on WABC in New York, I am told uh, that the audio that we were going to play of uh, AOC is not there, so sorry about that. To be continued. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everybody! This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Special uh, tip of the hat to our listeners on WOND Talk 1400 in Atlantic City. 
very, very loyal listening uh, group, and uh, I appreciate being on that station. We get a lot of great folks. In fact, in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Scott Cronick about um, all variety of things that are happening in Atlantic City that are great. But um, we're going to do denunciations in a moment. I did want to mention, though, for people listening on WABC in New York, and uh, part of my previous commentary was a little bit cut off, you didn't get to hear the full commentary of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, yeah, you know me, uh, talking about how she's criticizing Eric Adams for raising police salaries. So if you didn't get to hear the whole thing, listen to my local commentary. If you listen on the podcast or if you listen anywhere else in the rest of the country, WLVL in Lockport, KWAM in Memphis, KYBR in Anchorage, WCBM in Baltimore, the Nevada Talk Radio Network in, of all places, Nevada, um, WUCT in Nashville, you name it. Go to my podcast page, redapplepodcastnetwork.com, and search Frank Morano, and you'll hear the unadulterated version of what I'm referring to there. Now, if you don't typically subscribe to that podcast, you are missing out. Simple as that. Subscribe to Frank Morano Interviews and More. You can also go to iTunes or any podcast app and just search Frank Morano Interviews and More. We're going to talk to Scott Cronick in about 20 minutes. But in the meantime, there are a lot of people that I need to denounce, and they include... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. Connor Schwint. Connor Schwint is a real jerk, to be honest. This is a man who became trapped inside a notable piece of Edmonton in Canada. Yes, that's right. Public art made of large silver spheres. He's been arrested. Soon after, he was rescued by firefighters. Firefighters were called around 8.30 p.m. last Sunday. After someone walked by noticing a strange sight, a man was inside this mound of polished stainless steel balls with no way out. Connor Schmidt, uh, Connor Schwint, excuse me, said he was on a post-Easter dinner run past the the sculpture perched on the edge of Fox Drive and uh, the Questnell Bridge when he noticed a commotion. Actually, Connor Schwint is the observer, not the person worthy of the denunciation. Firefighters were attempting to extricate the man, and Schwint said he asked firefighters if it was a man or animal trapped inside. When he learned that it was a person inside, he began documenting the incident on his phone and poked his head inside the sculpture for a closer look. He said the man inside the sculpture was beginning to panic. It was kind of like watching a mouse fall into a bucket. He was just kind of running around inside of it, starting to freak out because he couldn't get out. Police say the man had climbed on top of the structure and became trapped inside of it soon after. To extricate the man, firefighters had to cut the structure and remove one of the balls. 
three crews, including a technical rescue team, were involved in the call. Thankfully, no injuries were reported. Soon after uh, the man slipped out of the sculpture, he was arrested. Police say the man caused damage to several of the balls while climbing on top of the structure. The 26-year-old was charged with one count of mischief with $5,000. Oh, charged with one count of mischief over $5,000, then released. The public art installation has proven polarizing among Edmontonians for years. So I apologize to uh, Mr. Schwint for initially denouncing him, but we don't have the name of the person that uh, was responsible for this. And in my notes here, I just wrote, denounce, and then dot, 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 Connor Schwint. So I'm sorry. When I, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Schwint. When I come across articles that I feel are worthy of denunciation, I just end up denouncing. And sorry, I, I misread my own notes here. It's like that Seinfeld episode, Flaming Glo- Globes of Sigmund. My apologies. I'm denouncing this unnamed 26-year-old that went splunking in a public art installation. Let me also denounce the campaign of Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. I mean, Nikki Haley really may win the prize for most bogus pre-report spin. The former U.N. ambassador's campaign said, and she's obviously running for president, said that it had raised $11 million between her mid-February launch and the end of the quarter on March 31st. It got that figure by saying Haley's campaign had $5.1 million in receipts along with $4.4 million for Team Stand for America, a joint fundraising committee, and $1.2 million for Stand for America PAC, a Haley launched leadership pack. But after Nikki Haley filed her first quarter report to the FEC on Saturday, an altogether different story has emerged. Her campaign's math did not add up. What Haley's campaign and two affiliated groups actually raised was about $8.3 million dollars. The discrepancy between the Haley campaign's public statements and the numbers on the filings appears to be a case of double counting. Haley got to $11 million by counting $2.7 million twice. Once when it was taken in by her joint fundraising committee and again when it was transferred to two of the other committees. If Donald Trump's campaign had used this method... It could have reported that its two main committees raised $32 million rather than the actual $19 million the campaign actually said that it raised. But where did Haley get this novel counting method from? So, I mean, if somebody can't even report accurately what kind of money they've raised in their presidential campaign, how can you trust them? To be president. How can you trust that this is the kind of folks that Nikki Haley would put in charge? I don't. 
All right, I want to denounce Westchester County prosecutors. Apparently, in Westchester County, New York, prosecutors have um, known for years that drunk driving convictions of Spanish-speaking motorists were influenced by poor translations of the consequence of refusing roadside blood alcohol tests. So evidently, they've known about this for a long time. People that didn't speak English essentially didn't agree to have a breathalyzer test. And the DA's office did not investigate this for three years. Westchester County prosecutors were alerted to this issue at least three times in 2018, in 2019, and 2021. And these folks did nothing. Nothing. Now, think of all the people, all of the motorists that were wrongfully convicted of drinking and driving because they didn't even understand what they were being asked to do. I will point out that the Westchester County District Attorney, Miriam Roca, who, as far as I can tell, is, I hate to call anyone a name, but as far as I can tell, is a total and complete buffoon, is one of only three or four people on this entire planet. And it's a large planet, don't get me wrong. That has blocked me on Twitter. Why did she block me on Twitter? Because I had the temerity to call her out on some of her shenanigans when she was trying to be a cable news pundit before she was the Westchester County DA. And and she was saying just nonsense. She was on TV spewing nonsense. And I pointed out, well, this isn't the first time she spewed nonsense. When I used to watch her as a federal prosecutor, she was guilty of a lot of nonsense spewing back then. She blocked me on Twitter. And now this woman, who is a public official that I, as a taxpayer in the state of New York, am paying her salary, she has me blocked on Twitter. Now, other people have tried to block folks on Twitter. Donald Trump, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And yet... They've been shown that these tweets are public record. For some reason, when it comes to Miriam Roca, the Westchester County DA, she can still block me. Well, you can block me, Miriam Roca. And I'm considering legal action on that, by the way. But what you and your office have done, and it predates Miriam Roca, it goes back to her predecessor as well, to be fair. What you have done... In terms of getting these motorists who had no idea what they were agreeing or not agreeing to, what you were doing in terms of getting them a drunk driving conviction and what that means for them in terms of legal bills, what that means for them in terms of future criminal prosecutions, what that means for them in terms of future employment opportunities – The fact that you had no interest in investigating this when this was brought to your office's attention and your predecessor, I have to be honest, I mean, that speaks volumes about the kind of leadership that's going on in the Westchester County DA's office. I must also denounce Mehdi Hasnan, 
of MSNBC. Mendy Hassan is a, an anchor for MSNBC who plagiarized a column advocating uh, spanking of children. And I want to commend um, Lee Fang, who found this and exposed this. But Hassan seems to have copied full paragraphs from a U.S. News and World Report article, tweaking only a few words here and there, into this 2000 independent editorial he wrote titled No Harm in Smacking. The original article, When to Spank, was published two years before Hassan's piece and was written by Lynn Rosalini and Anne Mulrine. This Schlemiel, Mehdi Hassan, Hasnan, plagiarized almost the whole thing and gave zero credit to the people whose article that he plagiarized. You know, look, I, I on the air, I read from articles all the time. I am quoting liberally from columns constantly. You know what I always do? I give credit to the person who wrote them. Well, what Mehdi Hasnan tried to do of MSNBC, he tried to pass their work off as his own. And yet, where are the repercussions? Thankfully, Lee Fang called this out for the public to see. But what is MSNBC doing about this plagiarizer that's on their air? Can you imagine if this was a Fox personality? If this was Tucker Carlson or Brett Baer or whoever else is on Fox News? Brian Kilmeade, who's going to join me next hour? If this was a Fox personality that had so overtly plagiarized an article... Forget about it. People would be raising holy hell. This is just as bad. You cannot commit plagiarism. And yet, that is what Mehdi Hasnan, Hassan, has done. Shame on you, Mehdi Hassan. I do denounce you. I must also denounce this sore loser wrestler who... When it came time to shake his opponent's hand, instead chose to sucker punch him. This is a terrible situation. And the family of a young wrestler who was sucker punched by his unsportsmanlike opponent has decided to, and I don't blame them, press charges after this aspiring athlete suffered a nose injury. So basically, youth wrestler Hafid Alisea delivered a sucker punch to Cooper Quarter after losing a wrestling match, sending his rival crashing to the mat. The incident remains under investigation by police and no charges have yet been uh, filed. But uh, this is just terrible. I, I, I don't even... If if you look at the what occurred here, I'm I'm gonna retweet it. I, I almost hate to bring more attention to it, but I'm gonna retweet it right now at uh, Frank M O R A N O. That's Frank M O R A N O. 
so you can see what I'm talking about here. This is a sore loser's sore loser. In my view, there's absolutely no excuse for this. And this is uh, – this the, this young man should be ashamed of himself, and I do denounce him. I don't know where he learned kind of th- this kind of thing, but this is just shameful. And um, it, the sore losers everywhere, I do denounce you. All right. Uh, We're going to talk with Scott Cronick in just a moment for the AC report. A lot of people have been patiently holding, though. I want to try and get to as many of you as I can. Uh, John is in Orange County. Hello, John. What's on your mind? Hi, Frank. How are you doing? I think I've seen that last video. Um, You know, I I had a comment question about your last guest, but, yeah, at a minimum for that last video, I'm I'm pretty sure I saw that that kid should be uh, either kicked off the wrestling team or there should be some penalty from the school brought against Absolutely. For that, for, for Absolutely. That That's unsportsmanlike, and the school shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, you know, the fact that the video went viral, the school shouldn't give him any support by not penalizing him for, for that action. Um, so without holding you up too long, I just wanted to comment real quick and ask a question on your last guest. I know they talked about John Mack, and I'm familiar with uh, John Mack and some of his work and that he was almost kicked out of uh, Harvard. They actually tried to pull his license from Harvard as a teacher and kick him and fire him. There was a whole board brought against him, and I think at the end somebody came, went to bat for him and supported him, but he came very close to, getting, to losing his job for going public about his research. And, uh, you know, that's a terrible thing. Have you ever heard of uh, the researcher? There's a researcher that followed in line of him. His name was Dr. Roger Lear. Have you ever heard of that name? No, I don't think I am. I, I have heard okay. of him, actually. So I'm just going to give you the uh, quick rundown. Uh, the, uh, he had passed away, I believe, uh, Roger Lear in 2014, I believe, or 2015. But he was a podiatrist, and he actually took an interest in the line of work that John Mack was doing with people who were claiming they, that they had alien contact or they were uh, um, abductees or uh, experiencers, uh, as they call them these days. And he did, I believe it was 17 surgeries. So because he was a podiatrist, he could only focus on the area of his expertise legally. But he did wound up uh, pairing up with some other doctors, and he wound up uh, documenting the removal of objects from these people who were claiming they were these experiencers. And then they took the objects, and they, they put them through a series of scientific testing. And some of the, the, the results were pretty astounding. I mean, like, just to kind of off the top of my head, because I saw the DVD that he had a series of DVDs that he put out. Um, like, the material was some sort of um, isotope of a meteoric iron, like a very, very highly uncommon metal. And then they found carbon wow. nanotubules inside of them. They were like small little objects, maybe the size of like a if you if you clipped off the tip of a pencil, like a graphite pencil, and they found out that there was um, bone cells that had covered the object so that the immune system of the body wouldn't uh, react to the object being inside of it. And then there was other ones where there was like um, proprioceptors, which are normally cells or nerve cells or nerves uh, that use for um, heat and sensory, like like in your fingers, like you feel. With, with proprioceptive nerves, they would grow into the objects, and there was really no explanation. So you had these, like, I mean, uh, you had these uh, anomalous objects being pulled from these people who were claiming they were experiencers. So 
my comment is that, you know, we're sitting around all waiting for this, like, holy grail, uh, you know, to come forward from some uh, uh, whistleblower. And, you know, there may already be that evidence available to the, you know, to professionals, to colleges. I think it's just a matter of the stigma behind the, the topic that if funding was, you know, if somebody revisited the work of uh, uh, Dr. Roger Leary, because after he passed away, I'm not sure if anyone has continued his work, but it's, it's well documented. So it, it's about. Roger Lear or John Lear? John Lear was a, uh, I think, the son or grandson of the Lear Jet Company. I think that's a different Lear. Roger Lear was a doctor. He was a podiatrist, and he basically took on this side project of removing these uh, quote-unquote alien implants is what they were being called. Wow. Because really, at the end of the day, there was no other way to explain what yeah, the Yeah, you know, were. I've done a lot of stuff on this in the, in the past, and um, if you can email me, uh, John, 800 at uh, yeah. frank.moreno at wabcradio.com, I'd love to yeah. uh, try and Definitely. do a follow-up uh, on this, because I find it really interesting. Thank you, John. We, we, we've talked to other people, including a lot of very reputable people, that, uh, that claim that they've remu- removed these sort of implants. And look, and I know I know a lot of people view this skeptically. And you know what I say to that? Good. Good. Everybody should view this skeptically. But there are too many people who have seen and experienced too many things for all of them to either be drunk or on drugs or hallucinating. And uh, the people that I've spoken to that have removed some of these implants, they strike me as very credible. I think there's something to this. I really do. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Well, Frank, first of all, let me apologize. I actually missed the first part of your show tonight. How dare you? Very good. And I apologize. Um, I have a simple question. Your staff gave me the opportunity to ask you a question tonight, and they have extended me that courtesy. You have been extended an invitation for two days to the home of William Shatner. It's, it's going to be a glorious two days. Top-shelf liquor, top-shelf food, everything. You're there for the first five, six days – five, six hours, excuse me. And then Mr. Shatner turns to you and he asks you, Frank, would you do me a favor? I mean, you're both drunk. Would you wash my car? What would you do? I would wash the car. Absolutely. I would do anything Shatner asked me to. 100%. Absolutely. I'm washing Shatner's car. It'd be an honor. To wash Shatner's car. No doubt about it. 800-848-9222. Lynn is in Maryland. Hello, Lynn. Hey, Frank. With reference to the plagiarism case of this MSNBC commentator, Mm -hmm. Mehdi, I didn't catch the last name. Hassan. Hassan, yes. Right. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but here in the United States of amnesia, people seem to have a tendency to forget I thought Joe Biden's presidential ambitions were finished for all time when he was caught plagiarizing the speeches and writings of others, including a particular speech by Neil Kinnock, a 
legendary British right. politician. Right. Sure. Do you do you remember that? Yes. And I thought it was it was just so gross. And plagiarism is a really cheap, tacky thing to do. And even if someone can't be, I suppose someone could be, I don't know if there are civil remedies for plagiarism. I don't think it's exactly a criminal offense. But to me, it should discredit someone in terms of integrity for all time. Agreed. And I really thought we would never hear from Joe Biden again. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thank you, Lynn. I, that plagiarism scandal ended his presidential campaign in 1988. Biden was one of the leading Democratic for pre- uh, candidates for president in 1988. And that pl- uh, plagiarism scandal, when he go- went on uh, about going on and on about plagiarizing Neil Kinnock and saying, oh, why is Joe Biden the first person in my family to go to college, yada, yada, yada. That torpedoed him because he had given that speech previously with attribution to Neil Kinnock, and then he gave it without giving attribution to Neil Kinnock. It was a big problem. And then people dig a little bit more closely into Biden's academic career, and then they saw that he had been guilty of plagiarism in either law school or college, and it really hurt him. It set him back, hurt his presidential candidacy in 1988. He had to drop out of the race. And it followed him when he himself ran for president in 2008. You remember... Between Biden and Chris Dodd, when they ran for president in 2008, they couldn't get 2% of the vote anywhere. And uh, it was, you know, he benefited because Obama chose him as his running mate. But, you know, look, America is a country that loves second chances. And Biden was the beneficiary of some second chances. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Scott Cronick in a moment. Um... Joe is in Ron Konkama. Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Frank. I was calling about, I was telling Kenny about the uh, cheating thing you were talking about. Uh, Sunday was me and my wife's 18th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. So, oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. And uh, I decided to upgrade her phone first. We went to T-Mobile at um, Smith Haven Mall, and we're waiting while they're transferring over our stuff. And the manager that I know really well was telling us a story about a guy that came in and he wanted to pay his wife's cell phone bill. So they didn't think anything of it. He showed his license. He paid it. As he's walking out, he turned around and he asked him, oh, can I get a, a printout of the receipt that I paid it so I could show my wife? And when T-Mobile printed it, it's a 10-page report, and it gives all the phone calls and text messages for that month. And he had right in his hand the proof that his wife was cheating on him. Oh, boy. And now, now T-Mobile's being sued by this woman because he wasn't really an authorized person on the account. And they're suing for, uh, she's suing them for over a million dollars. And uh, the poor guy that did this ended up losing his job. Can you imagine that? Oh, uh, I hate to hear that, Joe. Joe, thanks for sharing yeah. that. Uh, but that's, that's just awful. Awful. All right. What's going on in Atlantic City? How does it relate to you? How does it relate to the rest of the country? We're going to check in with Scott Cronick, one of my favorite talk show hosts. He happens to also be the proprietor of one of my favorite establishments in Atlantic City, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. We'll check in with him straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is the AC Report. By listeners around the country, Frank, how do you know so much about what's going on in Atlantic City from a political perspective, from a gaming perspective, from a dining and nightlife perspective, from a beach perspective, even though you don't get there that often? What are you there once every two months, every three months? And the answer is quite simple. The answer is I tune in on almost a daily basis to Scott Chronic on uh, Talk 1400 WOND. There is nobody that knows Atlantic City better than Scott Chronic. He is the co-owner of the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall. He is a, a distinguished and longtime journalist in Atlantic City, and he is a radio talk show host on the station. We're very privileged to be on this hour, W-O-N-D, and he's kind enough to join us on the radio. Scott, it's great to talk to you again. How you been? Hey, Frank. How you doing, buddy? Everything good? Everything is great. Everything is great. I want to pick your brain on a lot of stuff. Let me begin with the fact that in uh, 10 or 11 days, um, Mama Angeloni's 2, which is has long been, for almost a half a century, considered one of the best Italian restaurants in all of Atlantic City, is um, is closing up shop. How are you feeling about this place uh, ending its run as an Atlantic City institution? And what would you say this place's legacy is? You know, I, I Frank, I grew up uh, in Scranton. And, and you know, uh, Scranton area is full of places like Angeloni's. But, it, you know, this area, unfortunately, isn't. So we're really losing one of those true legendary Italian old school places, you know, that um, you know, with with the wood paneling and the and the, and the bar that hasn't been uh, updated in 50 years, and and really they care more about the food than they care about the ambiance. And the opposite is usually the case, uh, you know, in, in the restaurant world these days. So uh, we're really missing a, a true legendary place, and and I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the veal that melts in your mouth. I'm going to miss the uh, the spicy meatballs and martini night on Thursdays. I, I'm going to miss Alan Angeloni, who is this grumpy, uh, you know, old Italian guy guy who you know makes it feel like it's uh you know you, you know <laughs> like you're, you're in the past and it's just a real loss for atlantic city in so many ways but you know the guy deserves it frank he's worked so hard his whole life he's not doing it for any other reason other than he wants to retire and, and god bless him you know and he doesn't want to kind of pass it on and ruin his legacy to somebody else so he's 
He's just closing up shop, and he's doing it with dignity. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said for that. So uh, if people are asking why this a- institution, Mama Angeloni's 2, is is closing, yet it doesn't have anything to do with rent or the economy or declining interest or an up, uh, or inflation and an uptick in food prices, it's just due to the fact that the proprietor has had enough and he wants to hang him up. Yeah, I interviewed him. I did a story a couple of years ago for him, uh, and – he was giving hints then, you know, when he came back from COVID, he used to do lunch every day. He stopped doing lunch, you know, and then and then he, he used to be open more days a week. And then he started cutting the days down. And, you know, it was, it was just uh, his brother and sister who he's partners with in the restaurant kept saying, well, you know, hey, man, you can't take it with you. When, when are you going to go enjoy your life? And I guess he finally gave in and said, you know what, you're right. Uh, he, he just doesn't know what he's going to do, but he's going to do something. All right. Well, we wish him the best of luck. And uh, I'm going to be in Atlantic City next weekend. Uh, I was finally able to get a reservation at Cafe 2825. So I'm having dinner there on uh, on Saturday. I'm sorry I can't get to Mama Angeloni's uh, for dinner before they close, but I may try and pop in there. For we lost a, another great place. Martirano's closed on Monday. Uh, legendary Steve Martirano, Philly boy who came here about a decade ago. Uh, he has places in Fort Lauderdale. That's a cash cow. He's opening up a place up in uh, Philly's, um, uh, uh, one of the casinos there now. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, that was probably my, you know, one of my top three or four restaurants. And, and uh, it's going to be real. It's a real shame. I went there on Sunday, and it was still great, even though, it was in its final days, so Atlantic City losing two really great Italian restaurants. Well, in well so of, obviously of, Martirano's in is, is in a very different position than Aunt Mama Angeloni's, too, in that Martirano's been around maybe 10 years, maybe even a little less. Why are, why are they closing? Is that due to business interests or due to the fact that Steve Martirano's trying to do some other things? Uh, I think it's because, you know, Caesars Entertainment, which took over that brand, uh, uh, is p- probably doesn't want to pay him. From what I understand, it's a 7 to 10% VIG. Uh, but also, I think it's the prices of, of food and, 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 a, and a bunch of other things. And I think it's just cheaper to go in and put somebody in that they don't have to pay that uh, 7 to 10% VIG on. Mm. And, uh, and, and they're bringing in a restaurant called La Strada, which they have uh, out in Reno, Vegas. And, and I'm sure it's an easier deal for them. And I was really surprised, uh, Frank. You know, the dishes at Martirano's were outrageous. They were charging $30 for a cheesesteak. They were charging uh, $95 for a New York strip there. So their prices got really out of hand. And I think the, I think the price, I think the money they had to pay him was part of it. So I think they just decided to get out. Yeah, you know, I've been to La Strada in Nevada, and, you know, I, I found the food pretty good. I, I found the food at Martirano's really good. But, yeah. um, you know, le- you know, last couple of times I was at Martirano's, it was not the, the best experience ever. I mean, it, it sort of becomes a nightclub at, at a certain point, and... I don't know. I'll say the service there the last couple of times that I was there wasn't the best. So I, I, you know, I feel bad for Martirano's closing because I know that a lot of fans and I did enjoy the homemade mozzarella. But, you know, I am going to dine at La Strada with an open mind and uh, and an open tongue. Uh, that that's, that's for sure. Me and hey, you both. Me and you both. You were the guy. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Scott Cronick. He uh, does his own talk show every afternoon on Talk 1400 WOND in Atlantic City. Um, you were the guy that sort of seemed to broker a radio summit between two guys that were at loggerheads with one another. 
the mayor of Atlantic City, Marty Small, and who's a Democrat, and the Republican state senator representing Atlantic County, Vince Palestina. Uh, how how are you able to pull that off, getting them both on the air and getting them uh, to both work in favor of the direction of bettering Atlantic City? It seemed like an uh, an undoable task, and yet you pulled it <laughs> off. Well, I just uh, nagged them for about a year, and, uh, you know, both of them are my friends, and both of them uh, I respect a great deal. And I think that deep down, uh, each of them wanted to work with each other, but um, Marty, uh, uh, and Vince admitted it, he did, but Marty on the outside was very stubborn and wants to come across as uh, saying that, you know, uh, he's right, and he dug in his heels. So I basically had a beat on Marty for a long time. I said, hey, it's ridiculous that you aren't talking to the state's senator uh you want you want to do what's best for atlantic city but yet you're not going to talk to the to our highest ranking official from our district it doesn't make any sense so i think that after i just pounded him for a while he finally gave in and uh he, if you if you listen to my show and you can listen to it on uh in a podcast form on wndradio.com uh but you'll see how marty just wanted to basically get out all of the stuff that was on his chest he really wanted to say hey you did this to me and the republicans did this to me and 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 once he got that off his chest, he was able to say, OK, now we can move forward. But until he heard explanations and until he heard why those things were happening, he really couldn't let it go. And and he, and he took about an hour and a half of my show to get out all those things. Wow. And then the half hour uh, of the show was to work things out for the future. But he really, really wanted to say, hey, I was wronged and this is going to make it right. And, uh, and and I think Vince did that. And uh, they met. Yesterday, I don't know how that meeting went, but they, they they had a private meeting yesterday at City Hall because of that radio show, and they are going to move forward and do things together. So we'll see how it works. Well, that's great. Hats off to you for getting that done. We're talking with Scott Cronick. Um, you are, in addition to your media bona fides, in addition to your role as the co-proprietor of the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, you are now the co-executive director of the MBCA. What's the MBCA? So that's the uh, Metropolitan Business and Citizens Association. It started over 30 years ago by two very well-known people, Gary Hill and John Schultz, who are just uh, super powerhouses in the city. They own a ton of real estate. They were big club owners back in the day. And they wanted to start this thing about 30 years ago to kind of help businesses and to uh, do things for the city. And over the 30 years, it kind of lost uh, lost its focus, and it started to be more of like a community scholarship, uh, you know, nonprofit and when they came to me because Gary and John want to retire, lose things more in Florida, you know, I said to them, I'd be happy to take it over. But two things. One, I thought Gary should really stay involved and serve with me as co-executive director because of all of his contacts. And I thought that was important. But two, I said, we got to go back to the original mission and we're going to do things that are going to help Atlantic City. We're going to help beautify it again. We're going to help do things like planters and trees on the streets. We're going to maybe bring Christmas lights back. We're going to do special projects. Uh, to make Atlantic City appear, uh, you know, a nicer and beautiful place. And that's a mission for my next chapter that I thought I could, uh, you know, wrap my head around. And I started on Tuesday, and I'm really excited. About well, uh, that is terrific. Uh, obviously, this week is 420, not only April 20th, but 420 as a time and as sort of a symbol has sort of become an international symbol of marijuana. And Atlantic City is diving Head first into the recreational cannabis game. 
I can tell you, even before things became official, last couple of times that I've been there, when I've walked the boardwalk, you're kind of nailed in the face with the, I consider the stench. Other people may have a more favorable um, description of it, uh, the stench of marijuana smoke. But now they announced the first recreational licensed facility for recreational marijuana. What is going on in Atlantic City when it comes to marijuana these days, Scott? So, so you're right, Frank, and it's a stench in my opinion, too. And, and again, I'm not against it, but it, it does infringe on your, your basic air rights, just like smoking did, you know, uh, back before they started banning that. And it, it, it's uh, I'm a little nervous about it, Frank, because last time I was in Vegas, uh, you know, there were more signs for marijuana than there were for, say, you know, a Cirque show, you know, and, and, and there were more stores that offered marijuana and everyone smoked it. And there, and you couldn't escape it. You couldn't escape that smell, no matter where you went. And I and I and I'm a little nervous that Atlantic City becomes that. But today, in honor of 420, uh, the mayor signed into legislation to allow the first cannabis business to open recreationally. It's called MPX New Jersey. Uh, they already had a small uh, medicinal place, which is right on the Orange Loop, right on uh, New York Avenue. Uh, they are now building a bigger place that's right on the other side of that building. You can actually see it from the beer hall on the Orange Loop, and it's going to be uh, quite a big place, very similar to those Vegas stores that I told you about. Uh, but they opened today. Officially, uh, they're going to be a, a recreational license for the first time in Atlantic City. Uh, there have been other recreational ones uh, outside of the city, but this is the first one inside the city. Uh, and it's literally across the street from a giant 420 fest that's happening today uh, in the uh, Orange Loop Amphitheater. So it's, uh, it, it's quite a, a marijuana place to be for 420, wow. no doubt about it. All right, Scott, we're going to have to end it there. I'm going to be at uh, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall uh, next Friday. Hopefully some of our listeners will come down, too. I'm going to go down there with some some friends and uh, my wife. My my mom is coming down to uh, watch our son, so uh, she's going to be with me as well. Hopefully I'll see you next Friday at the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, Scott. I might be headed to Scranton, but if not, Frank, I will see you there, buddy. I hope so. Check out Scott Chronic on uh, Talk 1400 WOND every 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, Monday through Friday. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Peace of mind, Boston. Another bumper music selection for Lisa Esselstein's birthday. So I'm in this uh, pool. I've talked about it before. But during football season, it's called the 33 pool. It's totally random. No skill involved. And each week, all of us that are involved in the pool, we... Uh, are assigned a team to win during football season with 33 points. And if your team wins with 33 points, you win the prize for that week. If nobody wins, then the prize rolls over to the next week. So anyway, uh, my buddy Ed, who's a big listener to this show, probably listening right now, he's welcome to call in. He administers this pool, and the it, the pool is built in to have a little bit of money left over to, at the end of the football season, after the football season, they take whatever money is left over, depending on how many people have won. Sometimes it's 500 bucks, sometimes it's 600 bucks, sometimes 1000 and they'll place all of that money, they'll place a bet, on the hard six, the three and the three at the craps table, on craps at a casino. And if it wins, then the people, everybody that has is in the pool shares the money. So anyway, they were going last weekend. I was bummed that I couldn't be there. But they went last weekend. So here's how it went. I got the message from Ed yesterday. They arrived at the Borgata last Sunday in the latter part of the day. They had a room at what was the Water Club, which has now been rebranded the MGM Tower. And they're in the final stages of a big remodel. The check-in area has been updated. I can't wait to go. But um, Ed's room was on the 30th floor. Exiting the elevator, he saw the hallway had new carpeting. The wall coverings have been updated. The entire tower is now non-smoking, but there's scent of marijuana Marijuana filled the air. Apparently, the Borgata side still allows smoking. So after getting settled in, he headed to the casino, and they had several options for dinner. You know, they ended up dining at the Amphora Lounge, which is a great place. They do several laps around the property to walk off dinner and cocktails, and then they return to the gambling action. There were only four craps tables open. 15 through $25 minimum at the time. They were full. And he sees uh, his buddy at the three-card poker table. And even though it's not a game that he usually plays, he takes a seat at there, plays with him a bit. So anyway, he heads over to the craps table, and there's a convivial group playing that appeared to be friends. They're celebrating the 21st birthday of the young lady that's shooting. And she's on a heater, and she's hitting number after number. And this guy, Ed, strongly observes craps etiquette, and he would not buy in to the middle of a hot roll. So he did not cash in in that game. After she completed her hand, her group pushed in their stacks of chips and departed. This left just a few players at the table. So he bought in with his personal bankroll, holding the pool money back, you know, didn't put it in yet. He held the money back to gauge how the table was going. So the next 20 to 25 minutes or so was pure, as he termed it, craps hell. The table was ice. Every time he would get up on a few numbers or get his best bets pressed up, he would hear the dreaded stick man's call of seven out lying away. Sadly, the the three-card poker profits that he had brought to the table 
went away as well, as long with a good portion of his personal bankroll. So with things going so poorly, he figured that it was a good time to call an audible and based on his decades at the craps table and his fiduciary responsibility to those of us that are in this pool, he decided that it was not the best time to take a long shot chance with the 33 pool bets. Therefore, he pulled the plug and did not place the bet on the hard six. So I told him that I'm going to be down there the weekend of April 28th, and I'm hoping they're going to try this again. I mean, can you imagine what it must be like to place a, I I don't know how much money's left in the pool, maybe it's $1,000, on just the hard six bet? I mean, can you imagine the comps alone? Can you imagine? That's the one time where everybody in the casino is looking at you. Placing $1,000 or more, I don't know exactly how much love is is in the pool, on just one roll, the hard six. And if you're, I believe the hard six pays, um, I'm not sure if it's nine to one or eight to one, but it pays a lot of money. Not, uh, no, it's nine to one. So you bet $1,000, it pays off 10 grand. So uh, I'm hoping that they'll decide to do it when I'm down there next week. But, you know, that's the thing with the Borgata. I find it too crowded. I find the table minimums too expensive. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've been playing more at resorts, at uh, Hard Rock, at Ocean. Um, the Borgata table minimums, they're just too much. And if it's not enough that it's expensive, it's too crowded. So... It is what it is. All right. Do you have any language that is unique to your family? If so, I want to hear about it. What does your family say that no one else does? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, uh, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
every body. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to chat with uh, Brian Kilmeade in about uh, a half hour. We all have our home slang, our little quirks, nicknames, inside jokes accumulated over years of being, specifically in a family. You know, about a year or so ago, I uh, I covered the word orbiscalate because I had watched a uh, piece on CBS Sunday morning of this um, family that had created this word orbiscalate, which for them, what what their father who had passed away during COVID told them was the word for when citrus from a grapefruit or an orange. It it squirts into your eye. That's orbiscalate. And they were on a one man or two person mission to make this a real word. So I talked about it at the time. But that the point is that was part of their local family dialogue. What they call familect. Their little family dialect, familect. So we all have our homes hometown slang, our little quirks, our nicknames. Our inside jokes accumulated over years of living living together. And Catherine Himes, a linguist, wrote about this in the most recent edition of The Atlantic. A family dialect, a language, or certain words that only your family uses. Familect has many origins. It could come from words children mess up as they're learning to speak or from a funny story that turns into a catchphrase. For instance, my uh, my brother Nicholas, when he was a baby, he would call my Aunt Camille meme, Mimi, Mimi or memes. And so to this day... They, my younger siblings and other cousins of mine, call my Aunt Camille memes or Mimi just because that's what my brother Nick tried to call her when he was, I don't know, a year and a half old. So Familect can have all sorts of origins. Catherine Himes' partner wishes her a happy birthday by saying, Aiki domuz, a Turkish phrase that means two pigs, started back when she was early into language lessons and tried to wish her Turkish boyfriend happy birthday, but said Iki domuz instead of Aiki dogdun. Another example comes from a friend of Catherine Himes, whose household uses hog to describe a small amount of coffee less than a full cup. The term originated from a hedgehog coffee mug that was smaller than the rest. So words have power. And our secret language is one of the key things that makes home feel like home. So what are the words or phrases unique to your family? And where do they come from? That's what I'd like to know. 
What words do you use in your household or your family that are not used in society at large? In my case, and after reading this article in The Atlantic, I put a lot of time into thinking about this. And most of the words that I came up with are not unique to my household because I have the good fortune of having a radio show and I share them with the public, right? So I say good morrow at home. I say maple syrup at home. I say, um, I don't know, whatever, uh, salmon at home. I say all the words that drive so many of you crazy in our household, and I'm hoping that they'll be part of our family. Uh, I'll give you one so that I've adopted from my wife. So my wife is one of nine. And when, and I don't know if she'll appreciate me saying this, but hopefully by this point in the show, she's no longer listening. She, she and her siblings, their family, they would call a salad without olives Satan salad. So we've adopted that for whatever reason. So now if there's a salad that we serve without olives in it, we call it a Satan salad. That is a family that was an part of the O'Brien family act that we now have adopted in the Morano household. I'm trying to think what else. Um she would she would always say that her father who passed away who my father-in-law who I never knew would always refer to people as instead of a character a character which we say once in a while i uh, can't imagine why she chose to marry someone that had such a unique way of pronouncing things so give me your unique ways of saying things at home, your family slang, examples of familect, 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Axios picked up on this Atlantic article, and they cited some examples. One reader, Kara, wrote into Axios and said, her family grew up in New Jersey, but all of her extended family lived in upstate New York. So for our three-ride home, my grandmother would pack us each a SERP bag. Inside was candy, nuts, fruits, a piece of gum, and one time popsicles. And we had to wait until we got on the big highway before we could get, before we could dig into the bags. We assumed that SERP was short for surprise. Now when we give a family member or close friend something for no reason, it's a SERP. So that's one. You know, I'm trying to think back when I was growing up. I don't remember a lot of familect. I remember a lot of words I created as a young play, a young person. When I was a child, I had uh, maybe I was 10 or 11, I don't know. 
I had decided I had uh, seen the film Citizen Kane, and uh, which I loved from the first time I saw it. And I decided that I wanted to call our house Xanadu. And so I would then refer to our house, the place where my mom still lives, as Xanadu. And you know what? All of my friends would also refer to it as Xanadu because of Citizen Kane. Um, <laughs> I grew up on a block, uh, Sinclair Avenue. Plain old regular block, but for whatever reason, when I was 12, 13, 14, I I think closer to 12 in my defense, I decided that I wanted our block because we had such a unique community and such a unique environment. I wanted our block to secede from the rest of Sinclair Avenue, and we were the western end of the block. So I decided that we would call our block West Sinclair. And you know what? (laughs) Every single person that lived on the block went along with this. Now, I have no idea why they went along with it, but sure enough, they all did. They all called it West Sinclair. And sure enough, my friends that I grew up with, they all to this day refer to that same block as West Sinclair. So that's not so much as a, a family-lect as a neighborhood-lect. What words, what phrases were unique to your family, either now or growing up? How did they come to be? 800-848-9222. John in Freehold. Hello. Hey, Frank. Um, so I have two for you. Um, in our family, when I was little, uh, at the end of every commercial, they'd always say shipping and handling. And um, one one time when I was little, I said shipling and handling. And ever since then, it's been like a, you know, like a family, like in our family. It's always, what's the shipling and handling? Oh, I love that. That's a good one. That's great. And, uh, uh, oh, and then um, another one is uh, in Yiddish, uh, a sheep is called a shepsula. And uh, we, we've been calling my parents, both my mom and my dad, whenever we call them, we call them shepsi. It's like, you know, calling them like a sheep, kind of, but I know nobody else does that. I, th- th- those are two good ones. Thank you, John. H- have you carried those traditions over? And I-, I think you, you've you told us you have children of your own, right? Uh, no, working on it. Oh, okay. All right. But you have your own household and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, I use the same thing. You do? Okay. Too. So you've carried it over. You've carried it over. Thank you, John. 800-848-9222. Give me an example of familex, words or phrases that you've used in your household. Thank you. Hello, Buck. What, what do you have for us? Hey, hey, Frank. Good morning. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing okay. Thank you. Great. Great. Well, listen, I have the best familex that you're going to receive this morning. It's All the right. best one. My mom uh, invented this word, and the word is schmenke, S-C-H. M-A-N-K-I-E, schmanky. And what schmanky means is irritable or moody for no justifiable reason. I love it. And so it, how did it come to be? She just, she came up with it. She invented it. And it's such a useful and functional word 
that I've had, like, designs, of course, I'll never get around to it, of, like, somehow submitting this to some committee. It'll never work. But it is a fantastic word. I use it all the time. Schmanky, you know, it's, it's the best. I love, I love that. That's good. And so do you use it in your household now as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my mother uses it with my, my nephew and, uh, you know, my, my in-laws. It's just it's, it's all over the place in my, uh, my in-laws and my, uh, my family and, uh, you know, outer circles and stuff. It's great. I love the word. Lo- love it. Thank you, Buck. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Queens. Hello, Bob. Hey, how you doing? Uh, when I was growing up, there was a show. Well, uh, there was a show in the fifties or sixties called Fibber McGee and Molly. <clears throat> and uh, whenever they opened up their hall closet, it was so stuffed with things, everything used to fall out onto the floor. So my grandmother and my aunt used to refer to the hall closet as the Fibber McGee. <laughs> I, I love that one. Did that continue uh, in your household as well? It does a little bit. A little bit. I, I use it a little bit, and my sister uses it a little bit. I don't think anybody else. Maybe my brother as well. But, um, yeah, but it was funny. It was, they always called it. Like I'd say, well, where's the, uh, where's the vacuum? It's in the FIBA. Well, I always say FIBA McGee. It's in the FIBA. That's so, a good yeah. one, Bob. Thank you very much. Neil is in Baltimore. What do you have for us, Neil? Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, this one's a little weird, but my father used to always uh, refer to cats as Deweys and adopted Deweys as a general word for people. But it all came from a sound he used to make when he would call a cat. He would say, Wait, he would say what? Sound became, he would say, you know, he would just call the cat, just make a silly sound. And the last part of it sounded like Dewey. And so it, he, he would refer to everybody as a good Dewey or a bad Dewey, uh, meaning, you know, he, and he also was an expert in relaxation and tension control and actually used cats in his research. So much loved and everybody's either a good Dewey or a bad Dewey, according <laughs> to my dad. I love it, Neil. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Give me an example of family dialect. Something that you use in your family and that you've used in your family, which maybe is not a real word or it's not at least not used in the way that your family uses it. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Yeah, it's, these are just two words that are we mispronounce in our family all the time. And I was always surprised that people would call me on it when I was outside the house. I was like, you even noticed? Uh, comfortable instead of comfortable. You know, what do you mean comfortable? I think comfortable, comfortable, comfortable. And uh, instead of parenting, parenting. Wait, you no, say parenting, parenting or parenting? No, I say parenting. Parenting. Interesting. I like that, parenting. Yeah, so it, it, it wasn't phrases. It was just mispronounced words that we uh, just taught each other, I guess, wrongly. And, and, you know, like I'm kind of a Norm Crosby anyway, so uh, – <laughs> Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. 800-848-9222. Alex Barnard is here. Uh, Alex, what do you have for us? Um, well, I don't know necessarily if this counts, but whenever I will say the phrase, I see, or, or let's say if I, if I point something, I explain something to my mom, she will say the phrase, I see, said the blind man who picked up his hammer and saw. 
Uh, without uh, fail. She has said this ever since I was a little kid. But I feel like so I feel like that's that's um common, right? Um right. You, you well, know, but it's we do it kind of like a call and response. I see. Gotcha, Usually gotcha. she'll say I see said and I go the blind man who picked up his <laughs> hammer and saw, you know, like okay, mom, you know, Whatever. So how often do you uh, – because I, I say I see all the time. I, I don't know if I've said it to you, but I, I say it often. Yeah, um, you texted me it this morning. Did I? Okay, good. <laughs> so, um, I, But I, it's all in the intonation of, of how you say I see. H- how often do you use that phrase I see? Well, it's it's really more like if, I'm, if I explain something to my mom, she will say I see said – and then I okay. go, I go back with the the blind man. I got you. I like that. I like yeah. that. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. I see. Uh, said Alex Barnard. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You say it like I see. No, it, it varies. Hmm. It varies. It all depends. And my friend Flipper, she she can tell you she has a a whole catalog catalog of the different ways in which I use I see. Um, there's all sorts of different ways. It depends on how I'm responding. So it, uh, I could say, <laughs> I see, which means I understand what you're saying and I'm learning something new. Or it could also mean if I go, I see. In, in that's if I say, I see, instead of I see, if I say, I see, that means I'm acknowledging what you're saying, but I really don't like it. That's, that's, I see. Then I could say, I see. Now, what that means is I have no idea what you're saying. And I don't see, but I don't want to sound like a total jerk. Uh, but I want to acknowledge, I don't want to sit here like a, a, a lump on a log, or lump on a log and just kind of, you know, be there. Uh, so I say, I, I, I see and kind of tell you to keep going. That's my way of saying I don't understand. So it's all in the in intonation. So there's I see. There's I see. Then there's I see. You know, there's all sorts of ways of saying I see. How I say I see, that is an indication of whether or not I do see. 800-848-9222. Jimmy in Staten Island. What do you got for us, Jimmy? Good morning, Frank. How are you? How's my little nephew doing? I hope he's doing well, and I hope you had a beautiful Buddha Pasqua. This is Jimmy with a broken neck, almost healed. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad you're doing well. Okay, thank you, Frank. I'm sure you mean that. Here we go. You ready? Jeet. Wait, wait. Give, me the, give us a me again. Jeet. You ready? Jeet. Jeet? Oh, jeet. You're saying, did you eat? Ah, that ended. That means that's the truth. Yeah, you got me. All right, yeah. That's it. Jeet. That was the whole thing downtown Brooklyn. They knock on the door. Jeet. I, I like that. While. I like that, Jimmy. That's uh, that. That's big. That That is, I don't know if that, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I don't know if that's unique to Familect, but that is, that's certainly a neighborhood style. Of dialect, dialect. So, anything else unique to your family? Let me know. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 
Uh, Matt Blaze, anything in your family that was unique? I was thinking about this. Um, now the only thing is like we name things. Like the RoboVac for the pool, we call him Stanley because it's like Stanley Steamer. So we call him Stanley. I like Stanley. that. That's good. Um, when I was a kid, we had very close family friends. And one of the guys um, was the guy who was like the life of the party. He would make friends in two seconds in a bar, wherever. He was like that. And he gave all of the kids, he gave us all nicknames. And my nickname was Mafu. Instead of Matthew. Oh, I like that. And the reason it was Matthew was because his little his son at the time was like four and he couldn't say Matthew. So he said Matthew. So from f- till this day, I mean he passed away a few years ago, but his sons and their mother to this day will see me and say Mafu. Okay. Uh, uh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. I like that. What do you got for us, Kenneth? Uh one thing that I just thought of is f- when I was probably like Eight or nine, I made like a birthday card for my uncle, and he's like huge into Star Wars. So I wrote Dark Vader instead of Darth Vader and drew a picture of Darth Vader. So now every time he brings up Star Wars, he heckles me with Dark Vader. Oh, okay. Every single time. But do you use the phrase Dark Vader still? Anytime Star Wars comes up. Oh, you do? Still. Okay. All right. Well, that counts then, in my view. 800-848-9222. We are going to uh, talk with Brian Kilmeade in mere moments. You know, I was at the... um, We're going to do the $1,000 Minute in a moment as well. Uh, we I'm off tomorrow. Curtis Lee was going to be here, and he does a great job. Please extend to him every courtesy that you're able. We had the uh, National Psoriasis Foundation dinner last night, the gala, at the New York Botanical Gardens. Had a great time uh, where I was fortunate enough to be one of the honorees. I'm going to share, um, you know, I've been so busy for the last eight hours I um, haven't had a chance to share any of the photos, but I will after the show. Uh, if you go to Facebook.com slash Morano Fan, that's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. But uh, I, you know, very honored to be honored by the National Psoriasis Foundation and uh, very appreciative. I bought a table, but the uh, owners of our whole network, John and Margot Katsimatidis, they bought a table as well. So thank you to them for buying a table and making a very generous contribution in my name to the National Psoriasis Foundation. Uh, very kind. And, um, you know, it's, it's so funny with these things. It always turns into the same thing, which is a month ago, as soon as I knew that I had a table of my own and another table to fill that John and Margo had purchased, I emailed, you know, a bunch of friends of mine and said, hey, do you want to come to this? Do you want to fill the event? Do you want to fill the table? And uh, they said yes. So person after person said yes. And then sure enough, in the last two to three days, I've had cancellation after cancellation. Uh, Yesterday, my friends Frank and Tracy Fontaine, oh, I'm not feeling well. I think it's covid I I don't know. Now, you can't question COVID. That's the one thing still that you can never question. Um, and that, that's the one thing. Oh, okay, COVID. All right, all right. Well, you, you're off the hook for whatever you have to do. 
My friend Marlena, who's been a guest on the show many times. Oh, okay. My husband has to work. I can't get child care. Okay, what am I supposed to do to that? My friend Kyle. Oh, okay. I've got stuck down in the Jersey Shore. Now, the best was my brother-in-law, Josh. We're seated at our table. And I see, okay. And I was a little worried that we had over, I'd over-promised my table because I sent out an SOS to all the people that were coming yesterday. And I said, hey, I have all these extra tickets to fill. If anybody wants to bring someone, feel free. So, lo and behold, a couple of people brought someone but didn't tell me they were bringing someone. So I said, oh, my, oh, what am I going to do here? So I said, oh, well, I may have to move people from that table to this table, this table to that table. And then I text my brother-in-law, Josh. I said, look around. He's not there. I said, hey, are you still coming here? No problem if you need to bail. And he said, bail on what? He had totally forgotten about it. Totally forgotten about it. So, um, and (laughs) the best was, I'm on another group text with my friend Vinny and my friend Brendan and our other friend Kyle, who bailed on me last night. And he was making plans earlier in the afternoon to meet up with our other friends, and he had to bail. And so my friend Vinny sees that their plans are now canceled. And he says, oh, you should call Brendan. Now Brendan has no plans because Brendan was supposed to hang out with my friend Kyle, who bailed on my table. And Vinny says, call Brendan. He's got no plans now. So I call, I reach out to Brendan. I said, do you want to come now? And he says, well, um, I'll ask Jess, that's his wife, but I don't think she'll be able to make it on short notice. Now, but I don't understand. You already had plans that are now canceled. So why can't you come on short notice? So um, it was a fun event. And, uh, you know, I, get, I I only spoke for three or four minutes, which is tough when you're used to spending four hours on the radio, taking 90-second stories and turning them into 11 minutes. So I um, I had fun. I hope uh, everybody else, all of my guests had fun too. And I think we raised a, uh, a fair amount of money. You know, speaking of that uh, getting out of things for COVID, last year, Saturday Night Live did a very funny COVID parody about, and I said this, And this was much more true three years ago than it is now. But if you don't want to do something, whether it's a Sweet 16 or a work engagement or a meeting up with your college friends for drinks that you forgot that you had to do, all you have to do is say one word, COVID. And then it's you're off the hook. You're off the hook. Saturday Night Live did a very funny parody of that. Are you feeling tired and worn down? Sick of the endless grind at work? Exhausted by your family, desperate for some peace and quiet? Then ask your doctor about COVID. By simply getting COVID, you're guaranteed a five and sometimes even 10 day vacation from all of life's problems. I needed a break, just some time away from everyone. So my doctor suggested I get COVID and it was the greatest week of my life. All I wanted was to sit on the good part of the couch and watch the Netflix I want to watch. And I was finally able to, thanks to COVID. At first I was worried about getting COVID, but my doctor assured me it's fine now. I'm triple vaxxed, quadruple if you count HPV. 
so it's my time to shop. Side effects of COVID include having COVID, which is still kind of bad, but doesn't it seem different now? I definitely got sick. <laughs> but I also got paid for 10 days to never leave a blanket. Plus, I got a great story I could tell people at work. It was like I had a bad cold for three days. <laughs> and of course I had to isolate from my three kids because I didn't want to get them sick. But uh, what do they eat? I gave it 14 days to be extra safe. And for an extra fee, we'll knock out the Wi-Fi near your house so you can't do any Zooms. Oh, well, too bad. COVID is the perfect way to get out of jury duty, cousin's wedding, friend's improv show, neighbor's adult <laughs> baptism, and husband's murder trial. At this point, COVID is basically a 10-day cruise, which is also a great way to get COVID. COVID isn't for everyone. That's why there's also new COVID Always Positive Home Test. The only COVID test that comes with two pink lines already drawn on. Uh, again? But you just had it a week ago. Please don't do this to me. COVID. Because sometimes the only way to get mentally healthy is to get physically sick. And sure, there might be long-term memory problems, but that would honestly be amazing because there's so much I want to forget. My brain's already really bad. If it gets 10% worse, but I don't have to talk to a single person for a week, I'll take that deal in a horse beat. You mean a heartbeat. <laughs> Either way, thanks, COVID. Thanks, COVID. Thanks, COVID. I think I'll get COVID again. Today. COVID. Go ahead. You deserve a break. I, I really do think, and that's why that Saturday Night Live parody was so on the money, I really do think a lot of people use COVID just as an excuse to not go to anything. And I think a lot of people use it, even if they don't have it, as an excuse to not go to anything. I'm not saying my friends Frank and Tracy Fontano did that, but they might have. They might have. Um, all right. Seventh caller to 800-848-9222. We're going to play the $1,000 Minute, and then Brian Kilmeade will be here. We'll chat with him about uh, the news of the day. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to... You're a chance to win $1,000. Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Seventh caller, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, and you will win $1,000. Simple as that. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York The great Frank Sinatra improving And I think that's the only way you can look at it On the incredible Liza Minnelli uh, song New York, New York from the film New York, New York, which is now a Broadway musical. This is a birthday bumper music selection from our friend Pierre Gooding. Pierre Gooding is a great guy, an attorney, ran for city council in New York a couple times. He has worked at length with the charter school movement. He's just a nice guy. He's one of those people 
that um, whenever you bring them around to any group of people, doesn't matter if they're homeless or billionaires, they all say, you know, I like that guy, Pierre. What's his story? He, he, you, you ever have a friend like that where he's the one that everybody asks about? So anyway, today is his birthday, and uh, he submitted six birthday bumper music selections. Unfortunately, this is the only one that made the cut. So happy birthday to you, Pierre, and I hope you have a better percentage of birthday wishes come true than you have a percentage of birthday bumper music selections come through. Uh, because Pierre's a great guy and he deserves all this and more. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Chris is in the Queens. Hello, Chris. Hello, Frank. Chris, are you familiar with the game? Yes, I am. You know, you, you're you up on how to play, you know the rules? Yes, I do. All right. You ever played before? No. Okay. But we'll get started. Hopefully, uh, beginner's luck, just like at the craps table. Thank you. What season comes after winter? Spring. What animal says meow? Cat. Who was the leader of the Soviet Union during World War II? Stalin. Who is the Roman god of the sea? Uh, Poseidon. Ah, no, I'm sorry, Chris. You had uh, this the other day, you yeah, know, that it, is not. It, uh, yeah, Poseidon is the Greek god of the you're sea. Right. Neptune is the Roman god of the sea. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Talk to Kenneth. Hopefully he will be able to assuage whatever guilty feelings you are are feeling at the moment. Meantime, we are very fortunate to be able to talk to Brian Kilmeade, uh, one of the go-to news personalities in the country, co-anchor of Fox & Friends, host of the nationally syndicated Brian Kilmeade radio show and host of One Nation uh, on Fox News on the weekend and a best-selling, a New York Times best-selling author. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Thanks again for joining us. What's going on, Frank? Oh, qu- quite a bit. I mean, uh, part of the big news uh, this week, especially in the last 24 hours, is this Hunter Biden investigation uh, this story is uh, with this IRS whistleblower saying that the Hunter Biden investigation is being mishandled. If people aren't up on this, Brian, or haven't heard about this, what's the story? What exactly is being mishandled about this Hunter Biden investigation? So there's no sense that this uh, whistleblower is a Republican or Democrat. Uh, the letter went out to everybody saying, I'm getting whistleblower protection, Republicans and Democrats. I don't care. Who you are or what your agenda is, I cannot move forward with this investigation. I'm being thwarted by the district attorney, uh, by the uh, by the attorney general, rather. And he's stopping me in my tracks, and I'm tired of it. So, therefore, I think this is politically motivated. I'm coming forward to announce it. So he announced it to both sides, not afraid of the blowback from Eric Swalwell, all those other people that clearly are politically motivated and did the whole Russia investigation and want to attack you personally. Just ask the uh, Matt Taibis of the world. 
uh, when he came forward with the Twitter files. They didn't care less about what the investigation revealed. They just want to rip them, even though they're esteemed journalists. So he's going to come forward. We assume it's a he. And he's going to talk about the political, uh, the political holdup of the investigation. Now, they also say this uh, in the story that broke, and now it's in the Wall Street Journal and everything else. They also say that they're pursuing a parallel story with nothing to do with this whistleblower, perhaps, that Tony Blinken was the one who put together those 51 intel experts that thought, that declared that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation that include things like Leon Panetta and Mike Morrell down, down. So here you have the Biden people working with the FBI to stop the forwarding of this laptop that Rudy Giuliani gave to the New York Post, and they, we know what social media did. If you retweeted it, uh, if you're the New York Post, your uh, account was suspended. And then they had that letter that was put together by someone on the Trump campaign. They told everybody this came from the intel agencies who wanted to combine to make sure the Russians didn't interfere on election. Meanwhile, it was drummed up by a political organization run by longtime sycophant Tony Blinken, now Secretary of State, destroying the world by being so inept and idiotic and, and placid at a time of extreme strife and tension in which America's influence is dropping around the world. So I think that this is is, is big. You look at the fact that these bank records are now out that show the extensive uh, monies that were earned just on influence. I mean, mm. when people look at Trump, they say, well, Trump was in Saudi Arabia. Trump is in Ireland. Trump is in Scotland. Uh, Trump has uh, all hotels in Turkey. Okay. You want to know what he owns? The hotel, <laughs> the golf course, the building, the strip mall. What do they own? What are they doing? And why is he involved in Russia? Excuse me. Are we having problems with Russia? Are we having a problem with China? Absolutely. What what is he doing in Ukraine? I think that we all know we know that got Trump impeached because sent uh, Rudy Giuliani out there that uh, ill fated investigation that yielded nothing but uh, trouble. But now we have a situation where you have wondering what do the Bidens get out of this besides money? Are they get are we getting paid back? Are they getting their payback now? All these other countries. Well, it's uh, certainly interesting. You know, speaking of um, of Trump, he is ramping up his uh, campaign against DeSantis big time. Uh, the Trump Super PAC is now running a series of ads, um, which they've taken seven figures worth of an ad buy and running, including on Fox. But I think every cable news network taking aim at DeSantis for his desire to raise the retirement age and things of that nature. Now uh, they are unleashing this so-called pudding ad, which combines the notion that uh, DeSantis wanted to raise the retirement age with the story that he denies, DeSantis denies, that he ate pudding not using a spoon but his fingers. If people haven't heard about this, here's a little bit of the Ron DeSantis loves sticking his fingers where they don't belong. And we're not just talking about pudding. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements, like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Oh, and somebody get this man a spoon. Make America Great Again, Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. Now, since he's been running these ads, uh, Brian, 
we've seen Trump's numbers go up among prospective Republican primary voters and DeSantis's numbers go down. I'm wondering, do you think this might give DeSantis pause about running for president in general? And does it show that the Trump strategy is the correct one to attack DeSantis, not necessarily on conservative issues, but from a more liberal perspective? I mean, he's working the refs, no doubt about it. Trump's Trump's got the best team yet that he's had from 2016 to 2020 to now. There, there's no question. Pat Summerall's daughter's running things. I, I think her name is Susan Wiles. And she's got a rich rivalry now with Ron DeSantis, uh, who uh, they don't even speak to each other. Big story about that. She's a Florida powerhouse, but now she's going nationwide. So they're real organized, no question about it. And this was one risk that I was talking to a good friend of Trump's that was telling him not to run, by the way. And he was he said, you know, if Ron DeSantis is smart, he's going to get into this race quick because he's going to get he's going to get emblazoned uh, and he's he's going to get imprinted with the Trump. Uh, right. Little Trump Marco, love. Lion Ted, so on and so forth. Yeah. Low energy. And, and some, sometimes donors are a little upset. But he said, listen, I want to I want to get uh, the legislator done. I want to be there to sign this stuff into law. So I think DeSantis is hardest thing and pro-life people listening to us right now say it's no big deal. But knocking down abortion to six weeks, that is a problem with moderates, independents and undecided. So whether you like it or not, I mean, you could sit there and say, well, who cares? The right is right. OK, fine. But politics is a myriad of issues, not just Ukraine, not just abortion, you know, not just the economy, not just the border. It's a collection. So Ron DeSantis is actually out there is impressing audiences, is glad-handing, is the by far clearly number two. But is he dropping? Yes. Is Trump showing he's a pro? Yes. Is his best team? Yes. Now, I think that uh, with DeSantis, he'll probably be in next week or the week after. And then the game will really be on. Because I don't know if he has to even think about threading the needle anymore. I think he's just got to go for it and say, uh, if you're on DeSantis, uh, Trump can't do it. He's got impeached twice. He's going to get indicted three times. It's, there's no way he can win. So if you want to nominate him, I understand it uh, because you liked his policies. But he's not going to win. That's pro- probably how's he going to go. And mocking the ad, you know, probably having fun with that. And then we'll see what Ron DeSantis can do. The one thing I would say is that DeSantis doesn't take a backward step. He doesn't even know how. It might even be to his detriment. Uh, where Youngkin would recalibrate, Tim Scott would recalibrate, Nikki Haley might recalibrate, uh, DeSantis is going to bull ahead like Trump. So it's going to be fascinating. Well, so what does your gut tell you about whether DeSantis takes the plunge this year or not? Oh, he's going in. I would be shocked. 99.9% going in. Wow. Uh, well, it's good. In, certainly. Unless there's some type of personal challenge. Or that that pops up, and we hope it doesn't, you know, negative pops up. There's no way he's not going. Brian, you had tremendous numbers on One Nation on uh, Fox News last weekend. Over 1.13 million viewers. Now, that would be a lot for a uh, a show during the week. That would be not a lot for a network show during uh, during the week. Forget about a cable news network show. This came as quite a surprise to a lot of folks because this was one of the very few shows that you've done that didn't have Sid Rosenberg on it. And a lot of us thought that you couldn't break that million mark without Sid Rosenberg. What's the key to what you're doing on One Nation? What are people tuning into? What have you figured out that uh, a lot of other folks are still struggling to? 
Well, I mean, what, what I try to do, if you have a weekly show, uh, figure, Frank, think about this, how different you would approach it if you just had Saturday. Right. Well, I've how done you, just weekly shows uh, at uh, previous stations, yeah. and I did approach it very differently. So, n- number one, you know, I, I want to cut with, I, I watch so much, so I'm trying to get different guests on that also are somewhat familiar with our audience. They could take a different perspective. You know, I, um, I, I just try to also, you try to lighten it up a little bit. I, I end with a light segment. I go through all the stories that maybe I don't have a chance to get to on TV during the week because we're going from China the border to 2024. And I'm trying to bring a comedian in pretty regularly. We'll do that again this week. Uh, we'll do Cat uh, uh, Timp, who does stand-up regularly. He's got a book out. Um, and I, I also uh, try to lead with something, give a perspective, a bigger, uh, a bigger perspective on the number one story, which I have not decided on yet. Uh, for the week that I don't feel like is beaten to the ground. And I think people are fascinated with 2024 already. So I, I love bringing the perspective to that. I mean, especially on the Republican side, there's no intrigue on the left except for, you know, what the delay is. I mean, how, how much are Democrats willing to tolerate with, with uh, aging before our eyes, the president. But on the, on the right, uh, you, know about, you know about the field. So I'm trying to bring that in every single week. And this is uh, this is week's going to be uh, interesting because I got Jorge Mascavel, and he is the UFC fighter that retired at, over the weekend. But the first thing he did when he got the microphone is point to the president, former president, in the front row, and said, "I want this guy back. We got uh, uh, let's go, Brandon, right out of the White House." And Governor DeSantis is the best is the best governor ever. And I'm thinking to myself, "I got to get this guy." So he's going to be joining me uh, Saturday night, and he hasn't been on all cool. week. That's great. That's great. Uh, Brian, uh, radio today, TV today, what do you have coming up? What can people look forward to? Um, we got uh, Chris Vaccaro. I think people on Long Island and New York State can appreciate this. Get rid of all the American Indian references, Native American references. He's a professor at Hofstra, also a columnist. He wants to see if they could get both sides to talk because you're taking the Warriors out of Wontaw, the Chiefs out of uh, Massapequa. Flaming arrows out of Sachem, and and if you think it's negative imagery for for American Indians, okay, but why are you taking the name out? I mean, they're they were only meant it as tributes, not to be derogatory. What is wrong with being a warrior or a chief? That's the leader in your culture. I don't get it, and we're going to tackle that because fifty it was sixty school districts. 55 in countless high schools, 133 high schools throughout New York State listening to us right now. And it's going to happen to us. Say, 21 other states are doing it. I don't get it. Mm. So we're going to debate that. Uh, then Mark Thiessen is going to talk about 2024. We got the great Curtis Sliwa breakdown crime and uh. no punishment. Alvin Bragg's big loss yesterday in court. The punching of a female cop while she stood outside a smoke shop. The ramming of a car, a cop car last night. And Senator Blackburn is going to be talking about the oversight of the Afghanistan withdrawal. They're trying to spin it and blame it on Trump and the uh, the ridiculous uh, comments yesterday in, in the hearing as the administration uh, tries to make uh, heads or tails out of uh, their first series of investigations from Hunter Biden to the border crisis yesterday. If you've seen Mayorkas over the last two days, I've never seen a, a bigger U.S. embarrassment in my life. Senator Blackburn was one of the people questioning her. And then also, I want to talk about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Jumps into this race. And he's already got 14%. Now, that's not like Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter. I'll get you. You know, Robert F. Kennedy, he's got huge vocal issues. I don't know how he's going to speak. That's not his fault, but I'm just saying. So uh, I will, we'll talk about that. 
He's, at least he's got Aaron Rodgers support, it seems. Brian, thank you as always. It is always a treat to talk with you, my friend. Uh, I know a lot of folks going to be tuning into you on uh, Fox and Friends and on uh, on radio uh, mid morning, and uh, certainly on One Nation over the weekend. It's always a treat. I'll see you next week. Frank Morano, stay within yourself. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Joe! Hey, Frank. Brian Kilmey's 100% right. All these schools that do the worries and all, it's all a tribute to the American Indian. People got to wake up and stand up. This is ridiculous. John! Hey, Frank. Uh, I'm, uh, Last week, you cannot snoring. I want to tell you, sleep apnea has ruined my life. Mike. Hey, Frank. After you finish washing the car, could you straighten up the bedroom closet? I'm going out for dinner and a movie. And don't play with the Spock dolls. That slams the lid on things for today. Curtis Lee with tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day.